So I love I love data. I love labs. We we run them. But I, at the same time, as someone who runs labs for patients around the world for a living, I will say there's a science in art. Sometimes it's not the labs. It's just having someone outside of yourself. Because it's hard to be the person that's going through this. Like you're saying, like, you have to be your own N of one experiment. You had to be your own health advocate. You had to be your own doctor in many ways, like most of my patients. It's hard to be the person going through it, but also have some objectivity because of that sort of mind-body connection and nocebo and placebo effect. And I feel like it's labs plus clinical, like someone outside of yourself and sort of the artistry of what we do. So yes, labs are important, but I don't want to overvalue it because sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's just like, hey, no, let's do this and this and this and and maybe some basic labs, but you don't have to run every lab under the sun to uh, get information about your health. I'm Dr. Will Cole, and this is the Lifestylist Podcast. Dr. Will Cole is a leading functional medicine expert who specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing functional medicine approaches for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and more. And he's also the host of the Art of Being Well podcast, on which I'm soon to appear, by the way. And he's also the author of Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, Intuitive Fasting, and most recently, Gut Feelings. Here's a few of the topics we discussed in this episode. Neurotransmitters and gut health, how to regulate GABA, the absolute worst foods for your gut, the only legit test for glyphosate, the truth about oxalates and kidney stones, digestive bitters, low stomach acid and HCL, Crohn's disease and fecal implants, healing the gut with bone broth and colostrum, herbs that help reduce gut inflammation, using fasting to reset the gut biome, why avoiding carbs is so damn hard, and whether it's even sustainable to stay in ketosis, metabolic flexibility, the role that unresolved emotional trauma plays in chronic disease, defining inflammation as the root cause of most diseases, and why so many people's thyroids are jacked up, fibroids, ovarian cysts, and how to regulate progesterone, and why so many functional medicine doctors simply ignore retinol and copper, and the very real negative effects of non-native EMF and blue light. Show notes, links, and written transcripts can be found at lukestory.com will, and you can snag a copy of his new book at lukestory.com gutfeelings. However, if you want to save yourself the trouble of chasing down all the links and other valuable resources every week, here's a fast and easy solution. Just go to lukestory.com slash newsletter and enter your name and email. Now, once you do this, I will email you the audio, video, transcripts, and links from all future episodes every Tuesday morning. Imagine this. You wake up on Tuesday morning and all the goodies from the new Lifestylist episode are in your inbox. Super easy to do. Again, just go to lukestory.com slash newsletter. Okay, that's all the housekeeping we need to do here. Let's take a journey with Dr. Will Cole on episode 464 of the Lifestylist podcast. Will Cole, let's do the damn thing. Let's do it. Happy to meet you today. Likewise, this is, I feel this is long overdue, and I've I've all I've told you this before, but I, I've been standing on the side, the proverbial sidelines, just rooting you on, and you're doing amazing things and have for a long time, and I can't believe we haven't met in person, and now we finally the day has arrived. Well, that's because you live in a, a part of the country that's 
not uh, well-traveled <laughs> for people like me. <laughs> exactly. It's Western Pennsylvania in the country. It is not Abbott Kinney, yeah, <laughs> to say yeah. the least. Uh, I'm so... Un- that's East Coast, right? Would that be... Yeah, considered, I consider Pennsylvania. It's one of the 13 okay. original colonies. So it's East Coast, but it is in many ways geographically and culturally kind of the uh, gateway to the Midwest. Got because it. Cleveland and Ohio is not too far. So it's a weird... And it's very West Virginia too, is culturally as well. So it's a ju- it's a combination, it's a confluence of different cultures. I'm embarrassed to say that I doubt I could point it out on a map. My <laughs> wife is the same way. My wife is from Los Angeles, born and raised, and she, she when we met, she actually pointed to Maine, somewhere around Maine, where Pennsylvania was. No, it, yeah, I get it. You're from you're from yeah. the West Coast. It's it's a normal thing. Well, here we are. You made it yeah. to Austin. We're going to do the damn thing. Let's yes. start out by talking about your new book, Gut Feelings. What, what's that all about? I don't have a copy of it yet, but um, I'm going to leave it up to you to yeah. give us the pitch on it. Yeah, so it is like anything that I've written. It's born out of my day job. It's my, my passion is to help people with chronic health problems. So I've been doing functional medicine telehealth for the past 13 plus years at this point. So basically, that's all that I do. From 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., I'm at the telehealth center with my team, and we're holding space, running labs, and giving people the due diligence, in my opinion, that they deserve. People that are struggling with really complex health issues, what are off, they're oftentimes labeled as mystery illnesses, right? Things like autoimmune issues, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, anxiety, depression, brain fog. Those are my people. So gut feelings is really and a conversation that I have on a daily basis with them that I just wanted to share with the world. So this sort of issue that I find within our culture that we oftentimes will separate mental health from physical health. That's, oh, that's a mental health problem, right? Right. But the reality is mental health is physical health. And I love that we as a culture are having more and more quote unquote mental health conversations and normalizing people getting act care and support and tools for their mental health overall. But I feel like it's an incomplete conversation. I feel that really can't have a full conversation around mental health issues until you re- connect the physiological, but it's bi-directional. Both, and that's why I call it gut feelings. It's gut and feelings, the physiological gut, like underlying gut problems or mold toxicity or chronic Lyme disease or environmental toxins, how those physiological things impact how our brain works and the science around that. But then conversely, how do things like stress and shame and trauma and intergenerational trauma, how do these mental, emotional, spiritual feeling things impact our nervous system, impact inflammation levels, impact the vagus nerve? So it really is, in short, it's just an outpouring of my love for people that are struggling with these health issues and wanting this information to be out there more. Because I see people overcome the seemingly insurmountable when they start leaning into these practices. I, I get a lot of pleasure out of watching people. I mean, I don't have a direct influence on this in most cases, but seeing someone diagnosed as incurable this or that mm-hmm. and seeing them do all the things yeah. and overcome it. I mean, that's the best. It you is know? the Even best. Even just as to bear witness to that. Just like, yes, you, you beat the diagnosis. It is the best. It's the best. So I, you can't really go a day without doing what I do without being constantly encouraged. Not that these are light journeys or linear journeys. Healing is very 
non-linear, but it's so powerful. But yet so many people, I realize that we're in this sort of weird bubble of people who realize that this was an option, are seeked out functional medicine or within the wellness world. Like we all, we live and breathe this stuff. We're immersed in this stuff. We're still scratching the surface as far as societal awareness of people. They just think that's their lot in life that they're just broken or that's just genetics that they have to have these things like anxiety and depression and they just have to live with it basically and manage symptoms. But it's, there's so much more out there when you give your body the chance to do so. I love that you're inclusive of the whole being system, mm-hmm. right? And, and moving people out of this mechanistic, you know, it's like when you go see a, um, a holistic dentist, right? Mm-hmm they're of the belief that you're, you're, I'm, I'm working on my bite right now. Like I'm building a new jaw on this whole thing. But just seeing like biological dentists over the years, they have this perspective that even just your teeth and your jaw mm-hmm. affects your emotional state, right? Like some people in, in different um, sectors of health kind of get it, different practitioners, and they yeah. have this more sort of global view of the human experience. And so I love that you're looking at it as the whole being and how many people have you found that have, you know, an autoimmune issue or something of this nature that heal from essentially working on their emotional trauma, for example. I mean, I've heard stories of people, oh, they went and did ayahuasca or EMDR or whatever the Mm -hmm. modality was. And this seemingly incurable pathology was cleared because they went back through their family system and started to uproot those traumas and all that dysfunction. And lo and behold, the body responds to that. And in some cases, they haven't even done all that much work on the physical body. Right. No, that's that's the truth of like the the agency that we can have. And everybody's tools within their toolbox gonna, is going to be different. Now, if someone asks me, well, what do you think is more important? Like the, the physiological stuff or the psychological stuff? Like, is it more of the healing the gut and dealing with chronic infections or is it the trauma? And the, it depends on who you're talking to. It depends on everybody's, that's another heart of functional medicine is bioindividuality. And so everybody's tools within their toolbox is going to look different. But for most people, it's going to be a bit of both. It's going to yeah. be both the physical and the mental, the most spiritual, because it is such a both and not an either or approach for most humans. Have you encountered clients that, you know, you get their labs, you get the diagnostics, and then you, um, you know, get them on a better diet, exercise, supplements, doing all the things yeah. and, and, and then their labs appear to be clean for lack of a better term and they've been unable or unwilling to address underlying emotional issues and they, and they won't get well even though like on paper from a medical perspective everything checks out. Yeah, and, and without a doubt and but those people will typically hit a plateau is that they will get to a certain point. Let's just say they're ready to we run labs and we see they have SIBO or they see they have mold toxicity and we do a lot to move them in the right direction. They're going to, depending on how big that mental, emotional, spiritual puzzle piece is for them, will determine how far they can get with just dealing with one side of the coin. And then invariably, they may get mostly better. And then for those people, their path is they have more of a bandwidth when they feel more energetic and their digestion is better and they just feel healthier more in alignment with their body, they typically will have the bandwidth to go and handle the trauma or handle the chronic stress or whatever they're dealing with on a mental, emotional level. I've seen that before where they weren't ready to deal with the mental, emotional stuff at the beginning, but as their health unfolded, that bridge was able to be crossed. That's a really good point. That's 
a, a perspective that I share because um, on the show I talk a lot about you know emotional health, spirituality, and then all of the physical health, the biohacking, and all this. But I, I've always held the perspective that all of the physical health practices, you know, the red light therapy, PMF, ice bath, saunas, all the things, right? And I'm into all of it. I love it. I did two hours worth of all that stuff this morning, probably. Because <laughs> I built a life that enables me to do that. It wasn't easy, but I, I, I got there. But my perspective is that getting your physical vitality in place where you, you're, you're not ill, you know, you're not drained of energy, you, you have an abundance of energy, your sleep's good, like you're feeling good, digestion, all the, all the metrics by which we would measure health. To me, the only purpose of doing that is to do the emotional work and the spiritual work and to yeah. find why you're actually here in a body on earth. Yeah. Right. And I, and I know for me and many other people, it's easy to get caught up in the kind of hamster wheel of trying to hack your health into what you perceive to be happiness or fulfillment, mm-hmm. right? But you bring up a really solid point that if somebody's really depleted of energy and is suffering from any kind of chronic illness, try to get them to meditate, right? It's like, oh, yeah. why don't, you know, join a spiritual group, go do breath work, do yoga. It's like, dude, I can't get out of bed. I mean, I hear yeah. from people all the time. So I think that's a really, yeah. a really solid point is yeah. that, you know, you've, you've got to get to the point where you have enough metabolic energy Mm-hmm. to go do that work. Yeah, and then it's it's it'll continue to progress your health. And then I do see people that are we have to start with some of the mental emotional spiritual stuff to some degree, I think. Otherwise they white white knuckle the whole process. Like they let's just say they have a very reactive immune system, they're having lots of food sensitivities and a lot of histamine intolerances for example. Uh you in a way, it's not the deep stuff per se, but it's profoundly important to get their why at least to some degree cemented in because it's not a quick fix to deal with these physical health issues. So yes, they've not really dealt with all the trauma and all that stuff, but they at least need to know why they're doing this, whether it's, you know, I want to have the energy to do the things that I'm called for, or I want to be able to play with my kids and not feel like I'm always having to cancel on plans because I feel so miserable. So it's it is, it is interesting, this sort of psychology and how we as humans work when it comes to healing journeys. And that's the science and art of what I do. It's you really have to hold space for that person and realize, okay, where are they at clinically, meaning labs and health history and all that stuff. But then where are they at on a mental, emotional, spiritual level and, level and hold space, meet them where they're at and build a starting point for them that's sustainable for them. Enough for us to get their head above that proverbial water so then they can start to see, oh, well, like I want to keep doing this and get myself out of this woods that I'm in. Let's talk about gut stuff. Yeah. I, I think that this is an area of interest for me because I've, I've healed from all kinds of different things. Yeah. And I, I would say, I mean, I have a couple Achilles heels at the moment. <laughs> I have a really bad case of uh, tinnitus or tinnitus as some oh. call it, uh, which is just horrendous horrendous uh, but other than that I'm, I'm doing pretty well for yeah. a 52 year old guy I feel pretty good um, but my gut is definitely my my Achilles heel mm-hmm. and if I deviate and start eating weird stuff mm-hmm. um, it, it's going to have a negative impact and I'll start to feel inflammation and it, it, I just feel out of whack a couple days ago um, 
it's funny. My wife always looks at the expiration dates on food and supplements and stuff. I never look. I'm just like, ah, what, if it doesn't smell like rotten meat or something, I'm going to eat it. So <laughs> that, I go, that's your litmus test. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Smell so like if there's not meat. maggots coming out of it, we're good. <laughs> we're good. So I go down in my pantry and there's just all kinds of old supplements that I bought or people sent me. And, um, you know, peak tea, you're drinking the peak tea, right? They, they have these little liposomal vitamin C and elderberry yes, packets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we moved from uh, from California. Our shit was all in the garage for a year and a half in Texas heat, and all my supplements were out there. And if they looked all right, I kept them and put them in the pantry. So I go to grab one of those, and it's all puffy. Yes, I've seen that. Yeah, it's all like inflated. And I thought, ah, that's probably off. And I said, well, it's sealed. I mean, what could be in there? I ate it, and it was very like um, almost. Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Effervescent, kind of bubbly, you know. And I was like, ah, I probably shouldn't eat this. Did. And it wrecked my gut. Right. I mean, I got, you know, I'm going to go into details, but it was, it was not fun. Um, and then to the point of like gut feelings, and I really want to talk about the neurotransmitters and just how emotionally affected we are by our gut health mm-hmm. and what we eat. It took me a minute to connect the dots, but the day after, which would have been yesterday, mm-hmm. I was just kind of down for no reason. I just, I wasn't, I was just off emotionally and there was no other influence or input. Everything in my life is absolutely beautiful at the moment. Things are going well in all ways. And, uh, and at the end of the day, I was like, huh, you know, my gut got messed up. I traced it back to that. And mm-hmm. then I thought, you know what? That probably had something to do with why it was just a little bit, I don't know. I won't say depressed. That would be an overstatement, but just a little gloomy for no reason, which is not typical for me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I get like anyone affected if there's some external situation that's going on that's stressful or sad or something like that. But everything was great. And I was kind of just had that cloudy day feeling. And um, so it's great that you were coming today because I think this is a really important thing for, for us to start to understand of like how what's going on in our gut really impacts our brain function and our mood. Yeah. So let's just... I don't know if there's a question in that, but yeah. I know that you know you know quite a bit about this. So let's start to yeah. just dive into that whole yeah. It's topic. exactly what you said. Is things that I hear all the time with patients. They'll say, "I have nothing to be down about. I have a great life. Maybe some work stress, maybe some family stress, but nothing that's proportional to how I'm feeling emotionally." And it's I would venture to say the vast majority of people out there today, the va- like the the underlying driver of their mental health issue is an underlying inflammatory process. And then, you know, it's really our job and ultimately that person's job to figure out what's driving that inflammation in the first place. And for many people, it is at least the gut's a component to it, if not a big piece of the puzzle. Um, The gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. When babies are growing in their mother's womb, it's growing from that same tissue and it's linked for the rest of our life through what's known as the gut-brain axis or the connection between the gut and the brain. I mean, if you think about it, even physically, the gut even resembles the brain. 95% of serotonin is made in the gut. 50% 95? of 95%? Almost all of it. That's crazy. Think about how many people on SSRIs that probably just have a wrecked gut. Yeah. <laughs> and totally. just no one put the pieces together. Well, yeah, and that's a, big, that's a great point. It's like, okay, we, we can talk about that model of neurotransmitter imbalances or a chemical imbalance, if you even take that as a component for some people's mental health issues, what caused the chemical imbalance in the first place? Oftentimes, it's a gut problem and or an inflammatory problem that is causing the signaling problems in the first place. So it, we have to, and, and 50% of dopamine, 
is made in the gut as well. So it's a massive part. This isn't just some fringe theory. This is a lot of research being done in the scientific journals looking at this. The problem is it's just not as most things within the way that our healthcare system works, the passing it down sort of like, this is something that I'm talking with my PCP just does not happen. There's a disconnect between what, thing, what things are being researched and then what is actually the practical application. And the main reason for that is because the model is trained to diagnose the disease and match it with the medication. They don't have medications for all these things. But once there are, when there are going to be medications for this stuff, the gut mood axis, the gut brain mood axis, believe me, everyone will be tested for gut health and all of it because that's the tool within the toolbox. Once they have a pharmaceutical for it, then it's tested for, it's greenlit, and it's part of like a routine checkup. Right. But that could take a long time. Yeah. There's so much red tape. There's so many factors. It's beyond my pay grade of the, the politics of all of it. But we know it's just hugely oversimplified. I mean, they're, they're, someone's depressed, they just take this antidepressant. They don't run any labs. They're not looking at the mechanisms. They're not understanding why we have this problem in the first place. And this is where we're really failing people with anxiety, depression, and I would include brain fog, fatigue, ADHD, and autism. All the neuroinflammatory issues that researchers are calling neuroinflammatory, we're really failing them. Uh, and I feel like you know, functional medicine is, is attempting to help these people. I, I notice if I, uh, if I go off the reservation and eat some funky food, uh, invariably I'll have brain fog the next day. That's, that's usually the thing. Yesterday I was just a little moody, yeah. but usually my word recall, I mean, I talk for a living, right? So I, I can tell when I'm less or more articulate and able to just be sharp and on it. Yeah. And man, if I go out and you know, fall off the wagon and eat a pizza or something, guaranteed the next day I'm going to feel a lower IQ experience. You know? yeah. yeah, it's not fun. And I think you're more with the work that you've done and you kind of living and breathing this too f for your life you're more in tuned with that. Most people are kind of divorced with that and they have just various shades of feeling like crap and they don't really know, they can't draw a connection because there's so much clouds in the air, right? And it's multifactorial as far as what is contributing to why they feel. But when the dust is settled, like yourself, you're able to see, oh yeah, my body doesn't love, this does, my body, <laughs> this the food doesn't love me back. <laughs> you know, there's another side of that too. Um, I think just because of, the obsessive nature of my personality and just how into all of the health mm -hmm. modalities I am. It's also difficult when you're doing so many positive things for yourself. It's actually difficult to track what's doing what and what's working. Yeah. Like people will send me some cool a PEMF device or something and then others will ask, hey, does it, does it work? Do you feel better? Yeah, I feel great, but I did 20 things today yeah. that would all contribute to feeling good and I've never had the discipline, uh, unfortunately, um, to just isolate, like just live like a normal person, right? For a week and then introduce this, this yeah. input um, and, you know, a, a new meditation app or whatever it is, you know, a type of breath work, anything, ice baths, saunas, all that, um, red light therapy. I mean, there's so many things that are scientifically valid mm -hmm. and are impactful, but it's difficult when you do so many things to tell what's working. Yeah. So it's kind of the, the inverse of what you just described, yeah. right? Where it's like, you're living kind of the standard lifestyle and there are so many things you're doing that are deleterious to your well-being that you can't really pick out what it is until you start to mm -hmm. kind of through the process of elimination. Oh, okay, I stopped eating gluten. Holy shit, it's been a month. Oh, I actually do feel better. Mm -hmm. You're right. No, and it's, 
we typically with patients, because they are up against so much, we typically start from the ground up. And it's not a perfect science in the sense that we're not testing things in once a month, but we typically do phase things in. And we try to edit as time goes on. Like, what are your biggest needle movers? And maybe we'll need more needle movers at the beginning because there's going to be more factors. You're going to need more tools within your toolbox. But over time, I think you're good. Like, you have maybe a bigger bandwidth, but a lot of people get overwhelmed by all the stuff they quote unquote have to do. So over time, my goal is to streamline and edit and like, what are the biggest needle movers for you to simplify your life? Um, Which is not always easy and takes a certain amount of over time really monitoring this for somebody. But not everybody wants to be doing all the things long-term. They want to maybe do it for a season to get to a good place. But over time, it's like, what are the most essential supplements? What's the most essential biohacks? What's the best essential ways of eating? And let's just keep it simple. So part of my job is editing because people come in with all the things. Right. A supplement graveyard, yeah. as they call yeah. it. Like, yeah, I have one of those downstairs. <laughs> Biohacking graveyard. <laughs> Expired <which> supplements <laughs> in my case. Puffy supplements. Yeah, I'm still going to try it. You know? <laughs> but the reality is, okay, that's all good stuff, right? It's not like it's bad. It's like, do you want to keep doing it? Do you have the time to do it? Do you have the, is within your budget to keep doing it? So I, it, my, it, that's part of my job. It's just curating a, a more short list. That's a, I mean, that's an amazing service, especially for people that just for whatever reason aren't interested in spending their time doing all the things. I mean, yeah. I don't know what I'd do with myself if I wasn't doing this. <laughs> yeah, right. And and I want to get it, I want to circle us back to the gut and the neurotransmitter stuff, but don't let me forget to throw in orthorexia. Sure. Because I've observed in my own life that all of these positive things that I do for myself and I feel better and better all the time. Like I'm aging backwards with the exception of, you know, eyes, ears, a couple things that are pesky, but it can really be a distraction as well, right? And I imagine as a practitioner, it must be difficult sometimes if you come across someone like me that's just throwing everything in the kitchen sink at it mm-hmm. to reel them in and say, hey, like maybe, maybe all that you're doing is actually a distraction from you dealing with some of those underlying issues, mm-hmm. like emotional issues and you know, resentments you have for people or traumas, these things that kind of exist in the background of our psyche mm-hmm. and can cause or at least add to our general illness or lack mm-hmm. of well-being. It's like, I have caught myself at times like, wow, what if I just can't be present? Like, what if I were just to be a normal guy for a day and just not do any of the things? Mm-hmm. The things are kind of a trap in some cases, right? And, and can be a distraction from just presence and allowing whatever you need to feel or, or think about to to um, come to the surface and be dealt with. Yeah. It's like a way of running away from yeah. those things that you don't want to look at. It's yeah. kind of like a, um, it's like, I got to come up with a word for it, like spiritual bypassing. It's like biohacking bypassing yeah. or something, right? Right. Well, and, and it sounds like for you and for many people, I think that listen to your podcast that are really aficionados with this stuff and, and really uh, are immersed in wellness, that's the fun stuff for them, right? And oftentimes, many times, the things we need to heal are in the dark corners, right? And they're not as fun, right? They're not as easy all the time and take work. And we all have different areas that we need to go for to really take our health to the next level. But sometimes I'm always telling the people that are the higher level case, which is most of our patients, it's like sometimes it's not adding more stuff. Sometimes it's just being consistent with what we do have. And the waiting and the, the fact that it's not a quick fix is like, it's unsexy for people, right? Because they want the next thing. Like if I added this and this and this, and next month it's another thing, 
then that will be my magic bullet. Right. But the reality is, okay, no, all the things you're doing are cool. You don't need more stuff. You just need more time. Right, and right. Stay, stay consistent with what you do have. And that's based on labs and experience and monitoring this person, realizing that, yeah, maybe that next thing in theory is good, but you're doing enough. You're well supported here. You don't need another tool or whatever supplement in your life. And that's where the editor yes. like you comes in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'm saying like, yes, you can try it, but I don't think you do. And we try to prioritize, bring context to it. It's like, do, you, do you find some of your clients um, have pretty strong attachments yeah. to things that they're, they're, they're unwilling to have wrestled from their, their clutches? 100%, 100%. And you get to love these people, right? You know them, you know their quirks and where they're at and they trust me. So it's fine. Like they, let's just get a baseline. Let's go off of everything even for a minute and just slowly phase things in and see how you feel. Like check, because they are very intuitive people and they can realize, oh, wow, I don't, I was taking 50 supplements. I don't really need that much. I just need this little handful. And this other stuff, not that it's bad. It all makes sense. And that's why they started it in the first place because they did their research. But it's just more isn't always better. Sometimes it's... And then with food specifically, what can we get from food that we don't then need the supplement so much? Yeah. Um, going back to the gut situation, I've heard this term uh, thrown around a lot, the gut-brain axis. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, what is that? Uh, specifically, is that are these blood vessels that are going from your brain to your gut? Like, what is the actual yeah. axis? Yeah, it's it's a freeway between your intestines yeah, and your yeah. brain. It's like the four hundred five; it gets probably blocked up. Yeah, many yeah. People. <laughs> a lot of traffic. Uh, so, no, it is. As I mentioned, the gut and brain are formed from that same tissue. It's really our nervous system is really the major part of the gut brain axis. It's the crosstalk. Okay. It's the intercommunication between your gut and your brain, and your brain and your gut. So it's a bi-directional communication line, but it really largely is that what the gut-brain axis is, is the vagus nerve. It's really what it is. Ah, okay. So, and it's more than that. There's also microbiome crosstalk as well through the, the, immune, the immune system of the body. So neurotransmitters, the way that the gut bacteria actually influences the way neurotransmitters are expressed. And there's probably pathways we don't even understand the crosstalk between the microbiome and the mind. But what we understand now, it really has to do with the microbiome, which is really independent of us. It's its own ecosystem and then our own native nervous system and immune system. It reminds me of the, um, the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. I've always thought of it like, you know, in your neck or something, there's like a valve, you know, that opens up and lets blood in or not. And then one of the smart people I interviewed, they're like, not exactly. It's more of an electrical signaling thing, yeah, right? That right? It's kind of like your calcium... Um, gated, chain, yeah, yeah, the calcium gated voltage channels in your cells, yeah. right? It's not like it's not an opening, it's just an electrical signal that either allows it to be permeable or not, yeah. you know. So, I find all this stuff really interesting. I love yeah. getting into the weeds and just deepening my understanding because, you know, probably somewhat like you, I'm just fascinated by this living, breathing machine, you know, of perfection that we've been gifted with. And it's profound learning all the things we do that interrupt its natural ability to to be well yeah. and, and getting rid of those things and trying to add some things to it that support it. Yeah. And so much of people's dis-ease and dysfunction and you know, disordered health is really has to do with this microbiome-mind connection. The microbiome is so influential. And when you start to tend to it and take care of it and nourish it, the microbiome loves us back when we give it the chance to do so. All right, y'all, we thrived right on through 2022, perhaps the weirdest year to date. 
And after the end of year work obligations and holiday family fun, it's easy to start the new year stressed, worn out, and lacking motivation, which is definitely not the way we want to start the new year. So if you're feeling like you need a holiday from the holidays, I have a perfect solution. Do yourself a favor and start taking magnesium breakthrough every night before you go to bed. I do this daily and I don't plan on stopping ever. Why is that? Well, because stress depletes your magnesium levels and magnesium is critical for getting deep and restorative sleep. And the reason magnesium breakthrough is so effective is that it's the only organic full spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium all in each pill. And trust me, when you get all seven critical forms of magnesium, that's when the magic happens. Pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded from your sleep to your brain, from stress to pain and even inflammation. And even better, by making magnesium breakthrough part of your daily routine, you're going to wake up fully rested, recharged and ready to crush all of your New Year's resolutions. So for an exclusive offer for Lifestylist listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com Luke. And in addition to the 10% discount you'll get by using the promo code Luke10, you will unlock a special gift with purchase for a limited time only. So again, go to magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and get your gift. So you mentioned uh, tons of our serotonin is manufactured in the gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, 50% of dopamine, I think you said. What about... Um, GABA, melatonin, what else is, is happening in there that's critical to our, our you know, our mental well-being yeah. and sleep and all well, that? Well, if the gut's not making and storing it, it's definitely influencing it because of the fact that 75% of the immune system being in the gut. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. So even if you know, things like GABA and acetylcholine and things aren't having that much, the gut's not directly impacting it it's without a doubt indirectly impacting it and there's studies to show that too because of the way that people have bacterial overgrowth or at least leaky gut syndrome increased intestinal permeability these gi inflammatory processes are linked to gaba and glutamate imbalances for example and people have these sort of excitotoxin excess glutamate in their body and decreased levels of gaba which is the anti-anxiety neurotransmitter basically um so it is, there's far-reaching implications to poor gut health, both from an inflammatory standpoint, a nervous system standpoint, and an actual gut bacteria microbiome standpoint too. Okay. So let's get into then, uh, I guess we could start with the bad news. Let's talk about <laughs> some of the, and then we'll get into the solution, you know. Yeah, yeah. Hit them with the, with the bad news first. What are some of the things that most commonly trash people's gut? Okay, let me count the ways. Let me count, let me break it down for people. I mean, look, we have to start with food. I think most of your listeners probably know that, so I won't dig too deep into it, but it's what I would call the inflammatory core four or the four foods or food ingredients that are most likely to disrupt that gut microbiome, which is this master governor of your immune system and your neurotransmitters, your health overall. It would be gluten-containing grains. Which, can- which are... When we think, you, you mentioned gluten-containing grains, I think we typically just think of, oh, bread and bread. pizza, like flour, right? Like yeah. And wheat, wheat is the biggest insulter, but it's rye and barley spelt, but wheat is typically the most reactive in most people. But that exists on a spectrum, right? There's celiac disease on one end, but there's that larger gluten sensitivity spectrum. And you could have, and I have this conversation with my patients, is it the gluten itself? Is it the hybridization? Is it the spraying of glyphosate on the... I think it's a combination of factors because I do have patients that can go to 
Europe and have the wheat and they're fine. Then my mind goes to, is it, is it the glyphosate amount of glyphosate or is it the fact that there's less stressed on vacation? Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah, the gut brain action. They're in the south of France chilling in the yes. sun. <laughs> you know, and that's like... the impact that stress has on our digestion and our gut brain axis too. Right. So it's not just one thing, but there's enough data to show it's a bit of all that stuff. That's really that evolutionary mismatch, right? It's this epigenetic genetic mismatch that our wheat today is different than what humans would have had for thousands of years. And then it's an overconsumption of it. It's like a famine food that we're feasting on year round, and it's not prepared the way that our ancestors would have prepared it as well. You know, to that to that note, uh, because I just love bread so much. Um, <laughs> I remember years ago going to the farmers market in LA, and there were was a purveyor of sourdough goods there, yeah, yeah. and they had this whole presentation how when they ferment their wheat properly, yada yada, that it eats up all the gluten, and so of course I ate the shit out of it, uh, and it didn't totally agree with me, but. It was much more tolerable yeah. than just eating some random, you know, bread from the grocery store or something. 100%. Is there is there any truth to the, yeah. the fermentation, like sourdough? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to decrease the amount of gluten and it's going to make it more digestible. Similarly to people that can't have dairy, but they can have kefirs, they can have the yogurts, they can have the cheeses, because that fermentation is breaking down some of the dairy protein or casein, the gluten protein and other grain proteins are fermented and broken down. So it's less assaulting to our gut microbiome, this sort of gut garden that is kind of pissed off because we're eating out of sync with what it's used to. Right. <laughs> it's like letting us know in the form of the bathroom runs and the inflammation symptoms and the anxiety and the brain fog. Yeah. I interviewed uh, William Davis, the author of yeah. uh, Wheat Belly some mm -hmm. years ago. And that guy scared the hell out of me, man. Because yeah. I'm like, you know, I've no, <laughs> like my wife, for example, I mean, she eats gluten and it doesn't seem to bother her at all. And I've met many people like that. My dad's like full celiac, my brother full celiac. I've been tested for it. I don't have it, but I'm definitely sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. And so talking to him, I said, well, how do you explain this? He goes, it's going to catch up to everyone at some point. Like no one should be eating gluten. And he has, you know, a lot of scientific and historical data to support his perspective. But I mean, after that, I really was good for quite a long time because that interview was fresh in my mind. And yeah. he's, he's such a kind of imposing right. force on that particular topic. But I do think it's, it's interesting how all of us have our own level, levels of kryptonite you know i have yeah. friends that are fine and they can eat all the bread and the glyphosate and they seem they seem to be doing great but do you share the perspective that uh, leave gly glyphosate aside for a second because i want to get deeper into that but i mean do you think some people could eat organic wheat for their whole life and be fine because they're just genetically yeah. sturdy enough to handle it oh for sure yeah I, absolutely and i think that that's sort of back to that bioindividuality topic right organic wheat, even, even if it's not sourdough. I see people that do the ancient grains bread that has wheat, gluten in it. It's even like the iron corn, ancient wheat. They do fine with it. Better quality wheat. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just like people can have a, can drink every day and they live to their 90 or people, right, some people right, just yeah. random crap. You're like, right. what? Or you see the video on, online where it's like, What's your secret to longevity? And she's like, I'm Mountain Dew. And she's, but she's done it totally. for the rest of her life. Pack of cigarettes a day. And yeah. we know that's not healthy, but it's like that worked for them. And like the analogy that I think of is like this sort of mason jar or bucket. Some people have big buckets, some people have smaller buckets. That's your genetic bioindividual tolerance for stressors, whether that's food or stress or trauma or toxins, combination of lack of sleep. 
we can't change our mason jar size or genetic tolerance for stressors, but we can change what we put in it. A lot of my patients just tend to have smaller mason jars. And maybe your wife, I don't know her case, but I, maybe she has a bigger mason jar and she's just able to have the wheat and it's no big deal because in the scheme of life, the body, human body would not be here if it couldn't handle a little bit of stress. Right. And I would put wheat under that category. Is it a superfood for people? No, but it certainly provides some fiber if it's in its whole grain form. It provides some carbohydrates for people. So there's some, you know, merit from a nutrition standpoint that I just would say there's cleaner, more nutrient-dense options. For How about the, the power of thought? Sometimes when I mm. eat something like that, I'll have negative thoughts and I will um, sort of foresee the impact that it's going to have. And then it does. And sometimes I wonder how much of that is your brain sending a yeah. signal to like your body. A that, prophecy, yeah, that yeah. You're making, you're causing that reactivity by the, the staunch belief that you have that you're going to have reactivity. Yeah. To that point, um, I interviewed Zach Bush a couple of years ago, who's mm -hmm. like a big glyphosate, you know, anti-glyphosate advocate and whatnot. And um, we interviewed, and then it was in San Diego with my friend Josh Trent, and we went out to eat afterward, and someone picked an Italian restaurant, and we sit down, and he orders the freaking pasta, and is eating bread and stuff, and I'm like, dude, you're Zach Bush, like, what, you know, what's, <laughs> what's up? And he's like, I take my, I think it was called Restore then, it's yeah, called Ion, Ion. you know, he's Ion. like, no, man, I took some of this before, I'm good to go, and, you know, it repairs the junctions and stuff, I take that stuff all the time, I love it, and I do use it sometimes to, to cheat, and I, and I believe it does help, but I remember thinking, even if his body's sensitive to it, and maybe his ion product is, is helping with that. I'm, I'm, I guess that it is. But I, I saw that perhaps it's just his belief. He's like, we just had a great time. We're going out to eat. I'm not going to be neurotic and orthorexic. I'm going to eat whatever food's here and I'm going to enjoy it. And mm -hmm. perhaps his belief that he, he can handle it is contributing to the fact that he can yeah. or seemingly could. No, and that's that sort of orthorexic spectrum that I see with patients too. And it can be a source of dread and obsession and anxiety around it. And we have to, that's the feelings part of the gut feelings is sort of retraining and relearning a healthier relationship with food in your body, right? It's the nocebo effect, basically, right? It's, I believe even subconsciously that something bad's going to happen when I have it. Maybe something did happen past because it passed flare up from a food. And for my patients, it's sort of retraining their limbic system, their nervous system to be able to reintroduce that food without the fear and anxiety around it because what came first, the chicken or the egg with this, is the anxiety about the food or the food itself. And for many people, it is very confusing because it's a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, with the glyphosate issue, um, I, I've interviewed some folks, I forget who it was. Um, someone was explaining to me that one of the ways that we manufacture wheat and they grow and, and produce wheat in this country is that they grow it and it's sprayed with pesticides and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, including glyphosate. But then when they want to harvest it, they spray the shit out of it with glyphosate to dry it, like to cure it, to make it quicker to harvest. And it, it, I've heard it from a few people, so I assume that to be true. How much of the issue people are having with their gut health do you think is the gluten versus the fact that it's loaded with this incredibly toxic substance called Roundup. Yeah, I would say there, when I measure labs, I have to say I, I see high levels of glyphosate in a lot of people. Are there, is there a valid test for that now? Yeah, it's a urine test. Really? Yeah, and obviously there's no perfect test out there, but yeah. we, it's the best test that we have access to at this point that is 
very active or very accurate. And we can actually see that improve over time too and this stuff clear out. But a lot of my patients have methylation gene variants. They have HLA gene variants, meaning their body's more prone to being sensitive to these environmental toxins and biotoxins like mold and other bacteria and viruses. So I think it's a bit of both. But then, you know, it, you could make the argument because there's studies that show that glyphosate increases TNF alpha and like increases leaky gut syndrome and can kind of drive that neuro gut inflammation. So did that trigger the gluten response? You could probably make the argument that yes, you're measuring gluten antibodies, but the gluten antibodies are a response to the fact that glyphosate increased intestinal permeability and drove the inflammation. So for me, if someone really loves that bread, I want to get the best version for them. So let's get the gut healthy. Let's clear this stuff out. Let's get a baseline. And then let's work on reintroduction. Maybe it is that sourdough bread. Maybe it is that ancient grain bread because I want them to have that. What I call in the book is food peace, like not becoming obsessive or orthorexic about good things, things that bring you joy. And for some people, it's that dang sourdough bread. Oh, man. And they, they don't, they, but there's great <laughs> gluten-free sourdough bread, but for them, it doesn't cut it. They, yeah. need, they need the wheat. I'm telling you, <laughs> to me, there's no better food than some great sourdough bread with melted salty butter. I yeah. mean, like I could live on that if my body would allow me to. Have you thrive. ever heard of this brand? I have no connection to them financially, but they call, I think it's called Bread Seriously. You need to check them out. I don't okay. know how it's spelled. It's spelled kind of, you know, branded but yeah. bread seriously it is really good gluten-free sourdough bread really delicious i'm on it show notes editors take note we'll put that in and there I, I want a stake in the company please yeah right <laughs> so okay so and then with the glyphosate so that i've heard that you can test for it i've just yeah. surprisingly i've never done it probably because i don't want to know the answer yeah, it, it, that might be that people find heard that me say that and they're like, I want that lab. I want all the labs. Yeah. And sometimes it's me editing the labs back too. It's like sometimes the stress and anxiety around this result isn't going to do you any good, especially if it's not changing what we're going to do. Like sometimes it's like, we don't, not everybody needs that test, but it's helpful for most people, especially baseline. And how pervasive is, is this stuff in other foods like oat milk and stuff? I mean, is it is it just leaking into the food supply in it's general? everywhere. And that's the tough part of, People that I see that are the, tend to be the more plant-based eaters have the highest glyphosate levels because it's the plant-based foods that they're being marketed to that are convenient maybe or even you know fresh whole foods that are the plant-based foods that are the highest levels. So I, it's definitely something that people have to be mindful of. Okay. And then what about um, the negative effects of oxalates on gut health? Is that is there a relationship there? Maybe explain what oxalates are and yeah. what foods contain them. Sure, oxalates. This is fun because I, I love it. I don't talk a lot about like food and diet stuff. Usually, if honestly, if someone wants to come on the podcast and we're talking about that, I'm kind of like, yeah. I want some cutting edge quantum shit, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, food. But I think this is really important, even for people that are savvy. If we can get into the weeds and kind of the yeah. nuances of this, because there's there's so much kind of um, hysteria around fad diets and keto, vegan carnivore like it just gets overwhelming and boring but but i think there are some key things that are useful probably to everyone listening and oxalates might fall in that category yeah for sure and they are compounds that are made by plants they're like sort of the plants defense mechanism in a, in a way and certain foods like spinach and kale a lot of dark leafy greens are higher in oxalates some beans legumes like are higher in oxalates there's nothing wrong with oxalates i really don't like the hysteria, the hyperbolic statements around things like lectins and oxalates. I, I don't. Because ultimately, are some people more sensitive to oxalates than others? Certainly, they are. 
But ultimately, is it a genetic thing? There are some genes that could predispose, certain, certainly. But oftentimes, it's other factors that are causing the overzealous immune response to the higher oxalate plant foods. So it's not that you have to avoid oxalates at all costs, maybe for a time going lower oxalate and supporting clearing this stuff out. But for example, mold toxicity can increase oxalate sensitivity. So is it the spinach or the fact that there's biotoxins in your body and then the food's just sort of collateral? It's like stressing out an already stressed out immune system. So I find that I could, we could reintroduce most foods once you deal with these sort of what we would call upstream root things. And for some people, it's trauma. It's the mental, emotional feeling stuff that's impacting their immune system, where it's that that they have to deal with and retraining their nervous system and supporting the parasympathetic. Then that's, there's no problem with oxalates or sourdough bread or whatever else we're that's talking a, that's about. That's a really good point. Yeah, I'm thinking back to times in my life where I was under um, tremendous amounts of, of stress and just trauma responses and and it would ruin my gut like i just have all these digestive problems not from eating anything not from having a kale salad but from just being in a lot of fear or anxiety mm-hmm. and not being able to actually digest food like a normal human just yeah. because i'm emotionally wrecked yeah now cooking the from average human being back to sort of the ancestral thought of this humans for what for a lot of these foods, do lots of soups and stews. And if you think of like the Ayurvedic approach or the indigenous approach to a lot of these foods, they would be prepared differently. Even like the grains, they would be soaked and sprouted and fermented. That is part of the conversation too. Is it the overconsumption of like a food that's not properly prepared? And even for an average person that doesn't have mold toxicity. I think that's probably a bit of it too. Is that just we think because it's a plant food, we should have copious amounts of it in raw form. There's human beings, even just the nature of the planet right now, we are, we are living in a new world and compared to our grand, great-grandparents even, let alone generations ago. So the human immune system, I think, as a just general rule, is more sensitive because of this evolutionary mismatch. Nice. All right, carrying on. Um, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about the oxalates. Do you find a correlation between you know a vegan that's drinking kale juice or whatever all day and kidney stones? Yeah. Is there a relationship it there? It can be. Yeah, certainly. But look, it depends on what type of kidney stone we're talking about, what it's driven by. I would say it's not, are there people that have oxalate formed kidney stones that are driven by lots of plant foods? Yeah, it is. Or cacao. I learned recently yeah, cacao has a lot, a lot of oxalates. oxalates. I'm like, what? Yes. And I would Come say on. in the context of a diverse diet, someone taking care of themselves, it's low on my list of things to think about. I think that I would say the bigger problem that we have with kidney kidney stones and gallstones is hyperinsulinemia, excess, excess insulin and the modern American diet. So I don't want people to be overly, I don't want people to be fearful at all about whole real foods. Is it just a pivot of preparing it differently? And if you really enjoy that, kale salad <laughs> can't we like just make it in a way that that's a little bit more digestible a little bit more bioavailable less stressful maybe to your gastrointestinal system so yeah it's if you enjoy that green juice i wouldn't want to be alarmist because i don't think it's a massive issue yeah and the bio individuality is really true like i don't like vegetables generally speaking mm-hmm. and thankfully so i don't want to eat them but if i do i have a very difficult time digesting them yeah. Just, I'm just not a vegetable guy. 
Yeah, and I've tried. You know, I talk to people like, oh, this the nutrient profile of this now. I'm like, all right, I'm going to start eating the thing, and it's just like it never fails. I just yeah. don't do well. Yeah, and yeah, and that's a lot of people's systems. They have a problem breaking down those foods, but that's why soups and stews, even pureeing vegetables, can be good because you can get some of the fiber in it. You get some of the prebiotics for your gut microbiome. You don't need vegetables for that. You can get them from fruits. And even people that have reactions to fruits will start segueing them with like a cooked food, like almost like a compote, like inside of a pie without the pie part. Yeah. But like that, oh, that gives them, I know, right? <laughs> That's my favorite part. I know, right? It's, sorry. But like <laughs> that, that provides polyphenols and fiber and gut bacteria food as well. So yeah, this is the nuanced weird things that I think about. I love it. No, yeah. this is cool. Um, what about digestive bitters? Are you a fan? Yeah, sure. There's a vast majority of people, especially people that I talk to, which I know I talk to, not your everyday people, but I would assume that we have a massive problem of what's called hypochlorhydria, even if it's not avert, like diagnosable, but it's it's lower, it's functional hypochlorhydria, which is decreased hydrochloric acid. So digestive bitters are a good way to support healthy pH of the gut because you need proper HCL production, stomach acid production to digest foods. Because yes, it's true, we are what we eat, right? The foods we eat are the raw materials that make up our cells and make up our neurotransmitters and make up our hormones, all that's true. But ultimately, we are what we eat because we are what we absorb and we are only what we absorb. And HCL is needed for proper absorption. And many people have things like H. pylori or other forms of dysbiosis, bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. They are not digesting and absorbing foods appropriately. And we can quantify this on labs. So digestive bitters, just like an HCL with pepsin, ox bile can be helpful for proteins and carbs and fat. Digestion. Do you think if people have low HCL that they're more prone to parasitic infections and things of that yeah. nature? Yeah, it makes it hospitable. It's a hospitable environment for overgrowths, whether that be SIBO or protozoan parasite issue or CIFO, like a fungal overgrowth, candida overgrowth. So it's a, yeah, and, and, and it's fascinating these gut bugs that want to survive, like H. pylori has the ability to actually shift and influence the HCL production to make it more oh, no way. for like it'll shut it down. It'll shut it down. Shut so, off the acid valves. We want to grow and populate. And that's, that's what crazy. they do. They're opportunistic. Right. They take the advantage they're opportunistic bacteria that are like weeds overgrowing in this gut garden. That we all have some weeds. And that's the other sort of nuanced perspective that I have with these things is that they're not all bad, right? They're not all pathogenic bacteria. And I think that's the Western world's way of thinking about it, right? It's like you see these bacteria, you want to decimate them. Then you end up wiping out the good guys too and the whole ecosystem's off and it allows sort of reoccurring digestive issues because you've messed up the microbiome. So I feel like for most people, barring an acute infection, a, a, a pruning effect of the microbiome through things like digestive bitters or herbal antimicrobials or probiotics or postbiotics to support a healthy microbiome is a more sustainable approach versus saying that bacteria is a demon and I need to like atomic bomb the crap out of it. I've literally never met anyone in my life who doesn't like a little sex from time to time. In fact, some folks like it a lot of the time. The thing is that for men, their physical readiness is an important part of making this happen. Remember the last time you were at the gas station and you saw on the counter those horribly branded erection pills? Did you ever take a second to see what's actually in those products? They are terrible for you, just super toxic. 
And the same goes for most of the medication on the market that claims to help men in the bed, but who wants a four-hour erection, nasty side effects, heart problems, and a possible trip to the hospital to get rid of that thing? Well, luckily for me and maybe some of the men listening, I recently found this really cool product called Joy Mode that fills this gap. It's a performance booster, much like a pre-workout, but for sex. It's really cool. Joy Mode's gig is that they make natural and science-backed sexual wellness supplements for men. Their sexual performance booster is designed to support erection quality and firmness and sex drive. It contains clinically supported doses of L-citrulline, arginine, yohimbine, and vitamin C. To get yourself primed with the old Joy Mode, all you do is tear open the sachet and mix it with a glass of water, just like your favorite electrolytes. And uh, about 45 minutes later, it's going to be magic time. You'll notice better blood flow, better erection quality and firmness, and increased sexual energy and drive. I've actually taken this product myself many times, and uh, frankly, I was shocked that it actually worked and provided zero side effects. Do you gentlemen want to spice things up in the bedroom and boost your sexual performance? And do you want to do it naturally without those nasty prescription drugs? Well, we've got a special offer for lifestylist listeners right here. Go to usejoymode.com slash Luke and enter the code Luke at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's usejoymode.com slash Luke. What's your take on uh, taking enzymes? I think it can be a tool within the toolbox. Yeah, it's on the list of things that some people need. And there's what type of enzymes and what do they need? But I see that specifically with fat malabsorption. I see a lot of people need extra enzymes and ox bile can do that too. But a lipase, a good quality lipase or a blend of different digestive enzymes, they, especially the conversation on healthy fats, then they think more is always better and more isn't always better. And sometimes it's too much fat for their body and we just slow, low the, lower the amount of fat that they're having, whether it's you know, avocados or olive oil or grass-fed beef or ghee or something like that. But it's also for someone that's been lower fat for a lot of their life or has a messed up, you know, a dysfunctional gut microbiome, digestive enzymes can be a way to sort of aid the body. I would say I don't want them to have to be on digestive enzymes forever and ever because if I'm doing my job, I want enough gut resilience that they can produce their own enzymes to not have to depend on that. But there's no shame for somebody who has to use it for a period of time. Do our uh, digestive enzymes um, get depleted as we age? It does, yeah. And that's something you can quantify too, like pancreatic insufficiencies that some people have. I don't want to overly normalize the aging thing because I have patients in their 90s that are fine and they don't need enzymes <laughs> when they're 90. Oh, okay. But do chronic health problems over time can happen and some elderly people probably have an increased need for it overall statistically? Yeah, I would assume so. But I don't think that every person as they age it's not an automatically okay. needs, needs it. Yeah. Okay, cool. I love dispelling myths. I'm glad you're doing some of that. Because yeah. we, you know, in the circles we run in, I notice this when I research something online, right? I'll be like, hey, our enzymes good for you, right? And there'll be 
25 different <laughs> blog posts yeah. and they're all just plagiarizing e- each other. There's like these <laughs> yeah. thought memes that get out into the, yeah. the natural health sphere, right? And it's like, well, who's the originator of this idea and is it yeah. actually valid? So something like that, like, oh, as you get older, you have to take enzymes or else you're screwed. Yeah. And then that just becomes a pervasive thought and perhaps isn't further researched or or debated yeah. or, you know, have someone yeah. offering a different point eating, of view. How are they eating, right? I think that's the bigger point is how are they eating? Maybe they are having foods that require more digestion, but you don't have to eat that way, right? And if you're overall supporting your gut health, which may or may not include enzymes, there's many ways to support your gut health. If you're supporting your gut health, even as you age, I have found people to be able to digest foods just fine with some support, maybe probably not enzymes though. Okay, cool. Um, more on supporting the, uh, the gut here. You mentioned probiotics. Uh, is there... Are there different brands that you like or types? Like I use one called Just Thrive. It's one of our yeah. sponsors, a spore-based probiotic. My podcast. Oh, cool. Shout out to Just Thrive. Yeah, and you, yeah. you enjoy them. Are there others? I recently got another one just because I want to take different ones periodically yeah. and not just the same strains. I got this company called Seed, yeah. which is pretty interesting and yeah. I feel, feel good on those. I'll kind of cycle through different probiotics. That's actually what we do with patients. We typically will take breaks from them and we will cycle and rotate them because I mimicking nature and mimicking what humans would have been exposed to. That's sort of the what I'm trying to simulate through getting microbes because the decimation of our soil microbiome and the fact that people just live sterile lives are not out in the fields or in, the na- in nature, you know, roaming and foraging. A diversity of, of probiotics and prebiotics and postbiotics are a good idea for most people's microbiome, which the, the goal would, I don't want be, be, people to be fearful about this, but in theory, taking the same strain of bacteria forever and ever in high doses, in theory, could encourage a monoculture, could encourage someone to have this bacterial overgrowth too. For example, I see people, Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a beneficial yeast, right? There's nothing wrong with Saccharomyces at all. But I see people that will take it in high doses for years. And then I run a microbiome lab and they have overgrowth of Saccharomyces. And they st- their digestion's still kind of off. Am I blaming Saccharomyces for all their gut woes? No, but I just think that that's the point is that more isn't always better. You don't always have to do all this stuff. So way to mitigate that, and I see this improve people's gut health all the time. It's just taking breaks off of things, cycling things, rotating things. Don't overthink it, but ultimately use food as a modulator of your gut microbiome too. So make sure you're having a good amount of fiber to support bacterial diversity and you know, it, I, I realize a lot of my patients have reactions to lots of fibers. You have to be smart about it, judicious about it. They're having like FODMAP intolerance. A lot of these fiber-rich foods really flare them up. But start off low and slow. Even things like psyllium husk, which is so like basic, but can be a great tool to support from a food standpoint. Uh, and fermented probiotic foods from a probiotic standpoint. Like on the, on the probiotic foods, um, yeah. do you think there's any, you know, kombucha over the years has of course blown up. I remember back in mm-hmm. I think it was the late 90s, I used to make my own kombucha, yeah. those big gross. Scobies. <laughs> Scobies, yeah. I used to do it too. Yeah. Um, it, was fun. it was kind of fun. I want to get back into it. I, I, I mean, you know, it was, yeah. it was a cool little science experiment. Yeah. But then I, you know, I noticed these, the proliferation, What's the word? Proliferation? Is that the yeah. word? Yeah. Uh, the abundance of all these companies selling kombucha. There's like a whole rack at the oh, health food store. Now. Do yeah. you think there's any risk in some of them just being kind of random 
bacteria and not being targeted? I mean, do you ever have patients that experience dysbiosis as a result of chugging kind of swag kombucha all the time? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what I see with, with kombucha is people that have mast cell activation syndrome that have histamine intolerance that do a lot of those things, like a lot of the probiotic foods, overdoing it, it, it's a modulator to your gut microbiome, just like any food is, but especially those, you don't know exactly what type of bacteria you're getting. It's not labeled appropriately. Maybe it's not from like a vetted, uh, well-respected company that makes kombucha. In some hippie's basement. <laughs> <laughs> In Spokane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so no, it's, it's, I don't want to be alarmist about that either. I think it's overwhelmingly fine to have that. But my concern more than the bacteria is the look at the sugar added grams of sugar from that because they're sweet to make them more sellable. But it's like you want to get like the tangiest, tartest, like most vinegar tasting kombucha to really get the, the benefits from it, right? Otherwise, it's just glorified juice, which humans don't need more grams of sugar. Like they've learned nothing out of this conversation. It's that like, look at the amount of grams of added sugar. And those can be in a hidden way that's marketed very well to look very crunchy and very, very green, very You're healthy. You're drinking a soda yeah. in many cases. What, what I always look at with bottled drinks is the source water because I'm a water fanatic. Yeah, that's a good point too. And uh, I mean, I see this all the time and I'm actually this paranoid or this smart, depending on how you look at it. I've emailed companies and been like, your label just says water or carbonated water. What's the source water? And oftentimes they'll say, oh, reverse osmosis. And I think, well, great, that's perfect. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, if you guys are smart, I'm not the only nerd that's like looking, I'm probably few of us, but mm -hmm. I'm not the only guy looking at the label. Put RO water on there yeah. so you know. Yeah. And the majority of bottled and canned drinks, they could be full of fluoride and all kinds of nasty stuff. I think there's something yeah. like, 400 different toxic chemicals in tap water yeah. on average, you know? Right. So it's like, you think at the bottling plants of many of these companies, the greatest kombucha out there. And it's just like, turn on the tap and, you know, wherever they are in Cincinnati or something, you know, <laughs> or Detroit, even worse, you know, lead. I mean, it's just like, I mean, again, you can't be too paranoid, but I, I do tend to opt for drinks that say at least filtered water. Yeah. And you don't know what the filter medium is and yeah. how well it's filtered because yeah. filtering out things like fluoride is exceedingly difficult. Yeah. And that's, these are the type of granular things that I will often, patients will ask me, oh, it's not on the label, what do you think? That I'll, we will call up and find out for them because it's not on the label, you don't always know. And yes, you can quote unquote trust the brand, but you don't know unless you ask. And you know, sometimes they'll have papers to substantiate what they're saying too. What do you think about um, preservatives that are commonly used? I mean, I'm not talking about junk food and things like that, but I'll find like a cool little you know, ketone shot or something like that. And it'll have something like potassium sorbate. And these, the, this is, yeah. yeah. And this, these are the things, then I'll look online and everyone's saying the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like copy and paste information on a bunch of different health blogs and whatnot. Is that, a, you know, again, we're getting nuanced here and I love your perspective of like, let's not be psycho about all of this. Like do the best you can. I think it's a balanced yeah. approach. But do you personally think there's any risk to daily consumption of even trace amounts of, of preservatives like that? I would say that I, my vantage point is I am with very sensitive systems for 10 hours a day for the past 13 years. So if we see a reaction, we're going to see the reaction. Like we're, we're the, our, I call my patients lovingly like canary in the coal mine for their family members because they're the ones that have the reactions. I don't see 
immediate reactions to these preservatives in small amounts, right? And we call and ask them, you know, it's to me, it's, I, I would say I wouldn't be overly worried about it. But look, I think it's for someone that is sensitive and trying to do the best thing, having something every day for years, could there be a cumulative effect? Maybe. But I think the stress and anxiety probably is worse than that. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, that's a good point. Same with citric acid. You know, some stuff's come out recently. TikTok's really the hotbed oh, for, holy crap. Yeah. for the, the health product conspiracies. <laughs> and I've, I've always just looked at something like, oh, citric acid is orange juice or something, lemon juice, <laughs> right. you know? There's someone's that's just great. squeezing a lemon Yeah, and then I've seen this stuff, you know, it depletes your copper and this yeah. and that. I'm like, oh, now I'm all paranoid about the citric acid, which is ubiquitous and all kinds of foods and yeah. especially drinks, you know. I have some patients that are sensitive to citric acid. That's a little bit more high on my list for some people immediately. But yes, I mean, look, it's that's why ultimately speaking, whole foods, unless it's high oxalate right now, I'm just kidding. If whole foods tend to be, whole foods, let's say this, whole foods properly prepared tend to be the best source because you're not thinking about these random variables that are like the jury's out because there's not enough science around it. Yeah. It's just like you're erring on the side of, I just want to be as quote unquote natural. And I know that's a charged word, but as basic as you can be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good rule of thumb. I, I, that's probably the basis of popularity for the paleo movement, yeah. right? Of sh shopping at the farmer's market. And well, what have we been eating that's served us over the past however many thousands or millions of years? Let's yeah. just try and stick with that. I think there's some wisdom and that is also a good way to kind of remove the neuroticism that yeah. i'm exploring with you here right yeah. it's just yeah eat whole foods right that's uh, for me the farmer's market is kind of the barometer of that food that doesn't yeah. come in a package whether right. it's plant or animal or whatever it is and, and then if you make that your huge basis it's going to crowd out a lot of these random things that may or not may not be a problem for you and i think in small amounts most of those like the examples that we brought up aren't a big deal for most people especially in small amounts right okay um, going on to uh, gut issues, what, what's the deal with Crohn's disease? Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, they're both inflammatory bowel issues or IBDs. Look, it's, it's part of the larger autoimmune problem we're having, right? This, those are just two examples of it. There's an estimated, I think, around 100 different autoimmune conditions that science recognizes today. And then at least 40 above that that at least have an autoimmune component. But it's an end-stage problem. By the time somebody, for most people, that by the time they're diagnosed with something like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, or you look at neuroautoimmune issues like MS or uh, Hashimoto's disease, it's about four to 10 years prior to the diagnosis when things were kind of brewing on that autoimmune inflammation spectrum. So the deal with it is just the immune system's lost recognition of self. I talk about it in gut feelings because if you even think about that, that phrase of immune system losing recognition of self. And you think about the stress trauma component of that and how that even on a philosophical level, what's happening on a physiological level. But I mean, it's the combination of these epigenetic factors that are really triggering these genetic predispositions that have been lying dormant for thousands of years, but are being triggered and awoken like never before because of this onslaught of factors like environmental toxins, like the foods we're eating, like stress and trauma and all of the stuff that we're trying to really clean up to decrease that chasm between genetics and epigenetics. When it comes to something that's more extreme like Crohn's or, or IBS, as you said, that's downstream, do you ever look at um, more drastic interventions like fecal implants? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And look, the, I mean, I, 
it's drastic depending on yeah. you know your yeah, that's relative on your palate. I mean, I have a friend that had Crohn's. That that's why I bring it up. And and he tried everything. You know, lifestyle change, diet change, and he couldn't get rid of it. He found a donor that had never taken antibiotics um, and had really good poop. And you know, spent yeah. I don't know a couple, a few months going over to his friend's house and collecting his his uh, Dewey and uh, and putting it inside him. And he cured himself. Yeah, like cured, done, no more, gone, never came back. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, I wouldn't call it a risky, but I've, it's definitely not, I would say it shouldn't be anyone's first step and it should definitely be vetted. Don't try this at home. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and it's not a first step either. It's not like stop eating McDonald's and then go get a poop transplant. It's like, it's down the line. I'm, like your friend, he's exhausted all these options. And look, it's being performed by medical institutes for people that have like resistant C. diff infections, people that have these flared IBD issues that being monitored appropriately and clinically. So that's that's mainstream medicine. That's, that's mainstream that? medicine. Oh, okay. Then a lot of people are just DIY, like putting poop in a blender and like doing it themselves. <laughs> okay. Like that's not the way that it's done in the yeah. clinical setting. But yeah. look, people, I get it. People are struggling and suffering, and they're disillusioned because they go to the doctor and they're just spinning the wheels because they give them steroids and immunosuppressants, and that's basically all the options are given. So no, I understand. I would do the same thing. I would be looking at these options. And we cross that bridge when and if we need to for our patients, where it's like, let's get the best access to this tool with the, uh, for you. But it, the, uh, the caveats are it's not for everybody. It's really for more severe cases. It, it doesn't work for everybody. And it's not one and done either. Like you said, your friend mm -hmm. took a few months. It's not like one poop transplant, one fecal transplant. Yeah. And it's like- It was a daily thing for some, some yeah. period of time. So yeah. that's what the evidence is kind of pointing to. It's more of a prolonged, period of time, a protocol, if you will, to start to support a resetting, if you will, of the microbiome. Other tools for gut health. What do you think about uh, bone broth? Is, is the hype, does it live up to the hype of getting all this collagen? Yeah, it is. I don't know if it's, uh, it's <laughs> I don't know if it's worth all the hype. I mean, specifically to healing a yes. gut that's, that's hurt. I love bone broth and I love the tool, it being a tool within somebody's toolbox. I don't like people overstating stuff and like, you know, making it feel like it's going to be a magic cure-all for everybody's woes. I think it could be one really effective tool within a larger toolbox. Um, and you want to make sure that quality is important too, just like with anything else. But yes, look, I think we have a protein problem as a whole and we have an absorption problem, like I mentioned earlier. So a lot of people are doing, they're not having complete proteins. They're not optimizing their protein throughout the day. They're kind of protein, I don't use the word malnourished, but they're just not optimizing protein throughout the day. And a lot of protein powders and pro sources of protein from their meals, it's very reactive to people because they're having sensitivities to a lot of plant foods. They're having a lot of sensitivities to dairy or to egg. Hanging out with people that have food sensitivities for a living, that's one of the most well-tolerated sources of protein. So I think one of the benefits of bone broth and why people are seeing so much benefits from it is the fact that it's a clean source of protein that's bioavailable and it's not reactive. And it's kind of giving the gut a reprieve for once. So there are caveats to that. I mean, there are people that still have reactions like higher histamine, slower cooked broth, like longer cooked broth it tends to be higher in histamines. So I have patients that can't even have that. Really? Yeah. So that's the thing is like even healthy foods, what works for one person may not be right for you. Right. And I love bone broth, but I could tell you five, I could tell any healthy food. I could tell you a patient that has a reaction to it. That doesn't make the food bad. 
It's just about bioindividuality. And determining this, this bioindividuality, because that's come up a lot and, and rightly so based on your many years of experience, um, is that, I mean, it seems like the diagnostics, the lab work of working with a functional medicine doctor like you, like that's how you find out what your bioindividuality individually individuality <laughs> is, right? I mean, because it's, uh, otherwise it's sort of the, if, if you're just a, on solo mish and you're like, I'm just going to see what foods and supplements I respond to negatively or positively, right? There's so much guesswork in that. There's so much nocebo, so much placebo to determine if that thing's working for you. I mean, do you think the labs are really, you know, the, the um, silver bullet of, of really being able to determine over the course of a period of time, like what's working and what's not? Part of it is labs. I love labs and I love comparing and contrasting data. I love spreadsheets. Our top patient base are school teachers, engineers, and nurses, which I've found over the years, they all have this common love of Excel spreadsheets. Oh God, you guys are aliens. <laughs> I look at an Excel spreadsheet, my brain just explodes. A lot of biohackers like spreadsheets too. Uh, they have that engineering mind. I like, need infographics. <laughs> <laughs> Colorful shapes. And, we, we, you know. color, we color code it for, oh, okay. for all that's, the normal That's people. helpful. Yeah. Red, don't eat. Yeah, right. Yellow, maybe if you really need to. So I love, I love data. I love labs. We, we run them. But I, at the same time, as someone who runs labs for patients around the world for a living, I will say there's a science and art. Sometimes it's not the labs. It's just having someone outside of yourself because it's hard to be the person that's going through this. Like you're saying, like you have to be your own N1 experiment. You had to be your own health advocate. You had to be your own doctor in many ways, like most of my patients. It's hard to be the person going through it, but also have some objectivity because of that sort of mind-body connection and nocebo and placebo effect. And I feel like it's labs plus clinical, like someone outside of yourself and sort of the artistry of what we do. So yes, labs are important, but I don't want to overvalue it because sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's just like, hey, no, let's do this and this and this and and maybe some basic labs, but you don't have to run every lab under the sun to uh, get information about your health. So I do find that the, beyond seeing the data improve, which is hugely beneficial, it's also helpful for the person to know I'm on the right path. And it's like confirmation for them. Yeah, I've always enjoyed that, seeing improvements in lab. Yeah. Like for me getting older and seeing my testosterone get higher, for example, yeah. it's, it's fun, things like that, right? <laughs> and then it's not so fun when you, when you see things go wrong. Yeah. Um, in terms of labs though, I've always been curious about, I mean, it seems that, like if you do stool testing, right? It it kind of it is what it is, and probably gives you a very realistic picture of the overall, you know, uh, gut health. But with blood work, I never quite trust blood work because I feel like I feel like it's it, it's just prone to being so much more variable. Like if you're looking at hormones or something, I mean, there's so many things influencing that sleep and just everything. I mean, do you find that if you do a succession of blood based labs for someone that you'll get wildly different results and there haven't been any changes in the input? Yeah. Sna labs are snapshots in time, right? Especially blood tests is a great point that you brought up. It's like, and I have people, like for example, I'll see like a crazy marker where I've tracked data for years for them. And it's like, this has never been off. That's why the context around when they got the labs important. Like, oh yeah, I was feeling really down that day or like I was had a stressful time at work. And then I have them go back the next week and it's completely normal. So it's, you cannot hang your hat on one biomarker. And you, so you want to put the labs in context with all the other biomarkers around it, kind of see the overall trend of that day. 
then also look at their health history, how they're feeling, and like put it in context with them and knowing them. And then over time, put it in context with like trends. So that way you're not treating one number on a piece of paper at like 7.59 a.m. when you went on that Thursday and think that's going to be your mandate for the rest of your life. It's not necessarily the case. So, uh, and that can feed into that sort of orthorexic obsession too, where it's like, they're like, no, that's my number. And I, it's like, oh, like they're, they're going to be screwed because of that one random number being off. But bringing context and sort of explaining the labs is important. And otherwise stressing about this stuff is not good, right? Yeah, it seems like from the practitioner standpoint uh, with what you do, there's a lot of, I mean, experience, of course, obviously, just a knowledge base, but there, there's some artistry in it, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're not just being sort of myopic about one particular lab, for example, a blood test, and you're looking at hormones, et cetera, yeah. but the case history and also how does that measure up against all of these seemingly unrelated labs, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like an easy job that you have, especially dealing with people that are chronically ill and sometimes very seriously yeah, ill. Yeah, it's, it's not easy, but it's, it's such an awesome responsibility. And like I said, at the top of the conversation, it's so rewarding because when you see people get to the other side or just the unfolding into the other side, because it's a process, it's really rewarding. And you know, overall, it's great, but it's definitely tough sometimes because there's so much noise, right? And both internally and how they feel, right? When you feel fatigued and having flare-ups, that's a lot, lot of internal noise, which can make people react in ways they don't otherwise would not. But then there's a lot of external noises. When those people are struggling, they tend to go online and like end up in this random, and I, I read this online and I, I'm afraid of this now. <laughs> Dr. Google <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah. What about with, uh, with hair testing? Is that something you work with? It, it seems that many people are of the belief that you're, you know, you get a longer snapshot, right? Not yeah. just that day, but you have a three-month period where you can see heavy metal toxicity, mineral levels and stuff. Is that part of yeah. your protocol? Yeah, not for everybody. But yes, it's amongst, for people who need it, heavy metals are one, nutrient deficiencies are other ones. Definitely has its place. But again, I, even with that, I wouldn't look at just that snapshot. I would look at the larger context. Of Got it. it. Um, going back to um, the, the good news about gut health, what are your thoughts on colostrum? Do you think that that is a, a viable option to fortify or heal a gut? Yeah, I do. I think it's a great immune supporting tool. Has some good, you know, some uh, immunoglobulin aspects as far as supporting the immune system. Great way to, uh, even from a prebiotic standpoint, to start support a healthy microbiome. Yeah, and it's well tolerated. Even though it comes from whey, I find that people that have dairy sensitivities tend to not react to the colostrum part of it. If it's coming from a good source, obviously, but uh, those are the ones that I'm tracking over time. You mentioned uh, prebiotics and postbiotics. And I think that's something that's become more widely known and popular. If you go to the health food store, you'll find a bunch of prebiotics. Is there any risk in people just willy-nilly starting to uh, self-diagnose and self-dose those pre- and postbiotics if they have dysbiosis? Is there a risk of, say, you have an overgrowth of a pathogenic bacteria and now they're really happy and they're, <laughs> gonna, they're going to proliferate because you're feeding them? Yeah, I mean, is, and they'll know it. The people that that is applicable to, they'll know it. So that I, oh, I, I need to get lots of prebiotics and then they'll have it. And maybe they have SIBO, like a more severe case of SIBO and they'll have a lot of flare-ups from that. And it's, look, it's modulating the microbiome. It could in theory be impacting some of the good bacteria that's killing off, because probiotics are in, in effect in some ways 
antibiotics because they're regulators. And the benef more beneficial, the higher amounts of the beneficial bacteria, they tend to sort of regulate any opportunistic bacteria or pathogenic bacteria. So is it just feeding the overgrowth? Could be. But I also see the similar Herxheimer detox die-off symptoms from people when we're feeding the good guys too, because they're killing off some of the overgrowths. But yes, be judicious, start off low and slow. Just because it's natural doesn't mean you should be having it <laughs> or in copious Or just because you hear about it on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's so True. many people that just, you know, you hear about great things from great people like you and you're like, yes. oh, well, now I'm going to do that. You yes. know? And, and I, when I, when I like, we'll have these on my podcast, we'll have these case reviews where I like go over like, this is like the protocol and this is all the science says about this type of case for Lyme disease or histamine intolerance. And then I, my caveat, I always try to say this is like, you don't necessarily have to have everything I just said. Because I know there's a big chunk of people that would just go by everything I just said. It's not necessarily needed. So lean into it, find out what works for your body. And that's where labs and, help, and clinical experience can help you. Common request from Lifestylist listeners is a breakdown of my top five non-negotiable supplements. After a couple decades of research, I'd have to say that vitamin K2 easily makes that list. Nearly every American adult has insufficient levels of vitamin K2. It's simply not available in the modern Western diet. Why does this matter? Well, a K2 deficiency can cause major issues, including coronary artery disease, heart disease, bone spurs, kidney stones and liver stones plaque in your heart vessels, and even major cardiac events. In 1990, the Rotterdam study looked at people from eastern Japan who consumed high amounts of K2. More than 8,400 participants were given 50 micrograms of natural K2 on a daily basis for more than 10 years, and the results were insane. Participants of the study showed a 50% decrease in cardiovascular events and mortality, a 25% decrease in all-cause mortality, and finally, a 25% increased rate of living longer and healthier. It's crazy what they found in this study. So now you can see why I'm into taking K2 every single day of my life. And my favorite source is from a company called Just Thrive. Their vitamin K2 is the only product on the market with 320 micrograms of pharmaceutical grade K2-7, which is the optimal daily amount. This is the K2 I use and trust because it's microbiologist formulated and clinically tested and supports healthy heart, circulation, brain, bones, and nerves, and even encourages healthy blood sugar levels. So for exceptional gut and immune health, there's nothing like Just Thrive. And right now you can get 15% off everything Just Thrive carries when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use the code LUKE15 at checkout. That's justthrivehealth.com and the code is Luke15. Are there any um, herbs that you would generally recommend that are just supportive of gut health? Yeah, I think general um, cat's claw. So um, the reason why I'm saying these like, and they just popped in my mind is are some natural antimicrobials. I'm saying this because a lot of people have a lot of bacterial imbalances. So I think a nice, light, seasonal pruning of your microbiome generally is beneficial, advantageous for most people. So cat's claw, uva ursi, golden seal, caprylic acid, oregano, done, done judiciously can be helpful to sort of help the microbiome. So a lot of people that have bloating, IBS issues, 
and digestion, acid reflux can be ben- benefited by these, what I would call antimicrobial or you know, the natural antimicrobials, the way to, to support the microbiome. So I like those. I'm glad you brought up uh, oregano. I love uh, oregano oil. Yeah. I find that my gut really enjoys that on a, on a pretty regular basis. Just one little, yeah. one little capsule of the, the, I forget the brand, the it's wild oregano from Italy or something. It's super strong. Like yeah, you, break you don't one need open, much of it. Yeah, and I, I just I look at it kind of as a tonic herb. You know, yeah. it's like I don't take it every single day, but it's it's probably in my top fifteen. You know, yeah. little rotation in the cabinet. And yeah, it's very effective. It's all that stuff. It's just overall supporting the immune system. Again, seventy five percent of that's in the gut, so that's typically how it's working. So yeah, that's a great one. What's your take on? Uh, I'm just like firing every everything <laughs> that I could think of that people like me and those listening will probably be familiar with or have tried or want to try. What about colloidal silver just as a, you know, again, kind of a tonic to help keep the dysbiosis in check yeah. and give your immune system a break from having to constantly yeah. battle all I that think stuff? It's good. I think it's a good thing. I wouldn't do it day in, day out for years on end. But yeah, if you're feeling a little run down, I do see it as being a possibility for some people. I would say personally for my patients, it's not the top of my list of things I go for. And that may just be me and seeing other effective things. It's not a thing against colloidal silver. Um, my son, who's 16 years old, <laughs> was feeling a little bit under the weather the other day and he went and grabbed some colloidal silver and he was having lots more than I would was recommended on the bottle. And I was like, just be mindful of that. Like too much of anything isn't a great thing. But look, he's taking it for a few days. It's, it's not the end of the world. Got it. Okay. And then, um, God, there's so, I have so many questions here and I didn't realize there were so many about the gut. I think this episode is going to be in, in conjunction with your book mainly focused on gut health, but there are just so many of these little nuanced questions that I had here. So I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, get into that because I want to cover a little bit of fasting too. Are, sure. you, are you feeling energetically up to this? I am so up for this. Okay, because I, I, I go hard. Like, I, <laughs> won't, I won't be done until you feel done. Um, what about um, histamine? This is something I don't know a lot about, yeah. but uh, I, I've noticed myself and, and those that I'm close to will have histamine reactions that seem to be related to something they're eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people get this bad and we get into allergies and all this stuff. We have this thing here called um, cedar fever, which yes. Allison's had lately. And it's, yes. I mean, it's, it's like she got freaking Lyme disease or something. Yeah. I mean, she was wrecked. We had to leave town and go to the coast. By the way, there is an ocean in Texas, which I just learned. <laughs> just pretty cool. Three yeah. and a half hours away. Like the Gulf, right? Yeah. Like I mean, it's, you know, it's no Malibu, but no. it's, it's good enough. It's nice there. Yeah. And there, there, there are no cedar trees. But I'm noticing this is, a, is kind of a prevalent issue for people where you're just, you know, having these, uh, you know, runny nose and sneezy and puffy eyes and things like that. How is histamine intolerance and this issue related to gut health? Yeah. Well, certain bacteria can cause the immune system to release more histamines. These, bac- these bacteria that tend to be higher in these lipopolysaccharides, these bacterial toxins, which the immune system then responds to that dysbiosis. So I see a lot of histamine intolerance, quote unquote, that excess histamines in, in the body basically because of higher overgrowths in the gut that's causing an immune system response because of that. So my top cases that I see of people who have more severe histamine intolerance are people that have SIBO, chronic Lyme disease, and mold toxicity. And, you know, these are not all different silos. You can have more than one of those things, of course, but um, they also tend to have these HLA human leukocyte antigen polymorphisms, these gene 
haplotype variants that make them genetically more prone to biotoxins, which bacterial toxins are biotoxins, just like mold or viral toxins are biotoxins. So that's typically back to that bucket mason jar analogy. Right. They, uh, you know, their bucket's overflowing in that way, right? Where they're just, we all have histamines. Histamines are a normal part of the immune system. There's nothing wrong with that. But they just have hit their tipping point. They've hit their threshold of just handling too much. And foods can, can set it over the edge. Oftentimes, again, the food is just the tipping point. It's not the major problem. And that's what I'm saying, like putting that under that one of many food intolerances that people can have, when you deal with the predominance of the things that are filling up that mason jar, then the random you know, kombucha that's higher histamine isn't going to matter so much. Or really, like avocados, bone broth, all chocolate, coffee can all be reactive to some of these people that have mold toxicity and higher histamines. Oh, interesting. Because anything that sort of aggravates or provokes that underlying driver of histamine intolerance, like for example, with coffee, with mold, um, it's that mechanism that's going on for that person. God, don't come after the coffee. I man. know, right? And chocolate. <laughs> I'm pissing so many people off right now. Do, but, do you think that the the mycotoxins in in coffee and chocolate is a real issue? I mean, do you see that clinically? I don't think it's the major driver of their symptoms, but I think mold, theoretically, mold is very t- territorial. So when somebody already has a primed hypervigilant immune response and then you consume different types of mold, even small amounts and someone that's biotoxin sensitive, yeah, it can be a contributing factor. Do I think that food is the major cause of why people have high mold toxicity? No, I don't. But I think it could be a contributing factor. I looked at the air quality report here the other day because I was trying to get out of the cedar situation. And um, the marker for just ambient mold levels was like in the red high. I'm like, what? I always think of mold being, you know, you have a leak under the sink or something, right? Or you have it in your HVAC system, like yeah. real, like a mold presence in your home. But um, it seems like it's just out there in the yeah. environment too. It is. And that's why even you know outside, we're talking about this amount. What can we empty the bucket with? Humans would have always been around these trees and everything. I don't think humans had the level of reactions they're having now because of these other variables. But yeah, the more you're exposed, especially to toxic mold, uh, the more it's going to be reactive. And we, we lovingly call parts of Texas and Florida like our moldy states. Because really? We, That's yeah, a known thing? It's a known thing. At least my clinic, at least my <laughs> handful of employees, wow. that you're more likely to have high levels of these mold. And it's not just from the inside. It can come from the outside too, especially like I have my windows open and everything, but it's like your immune system is really reactive to this mold. And maybe you have these HLA variants. You're just not detoxing and methylating these molds. And over time, really aggravates it. Mold is everywhere. So I don't want to be overly like, even fearful about that. Not all mold is toxic and not everybody's going to have the same reaction to molds. So it's about what type of mold are we talking about? And then who's exposed to it? And then how much are you exposed to it? There's a lot of variables to consider there. Okay, cool. Again, I love your I love your balanced approach. It's like good information, but not let's not yeah. panic. Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't live in a bubble. Yeah. Cause I'm I'm kind of a bubble panic guy at times. So this <laughs> this is good for me. Just settle down. Um so you've you've talked a lot about fasting, and this is something um, I've experimented with, and I'm, I'm sure many people listening have as well. It, it's not really, I, I found it just to be difficult to kind of learn 
the right way to do it. And there's so much conflicting information of whether you're doing a dry fast, a water fast, you know, if you're doing cyclical fasting, ketosis, it just gets to be overwhelming where I just kind of, like you've talked about intuitive eating. I'm just like, eh, you know, I'll take a break. If I have a fatty coffee in the morning, I probably won't eat until dinner or something, but it's, I'm not like on a program. But going back to the gut health, I've heard you speak about um, fasting as being a great way to do kind of a hard reset on the gut. So how is fasting supportive of gut health? Yeah. So our gut microbiome, which we've been talking about throughout this conversation, depending on the study that you look at, we have about 100 trillion, upwards of 100 trillion bacteria and about 10 trillion human cells. So we're all about 10 times more bacteria than human. And it's this gut garden, this microbiome metropolis that is all the bacteria and yeast and fungus. Like the, It's called the mycobiome is the beneficial yeast and fungus. It is not static. Researchers have found that the microbiome and the mycobiome have a circadian rhythm, just like our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the way that melatonin, our sleep-wake cycle, basically. The way that hormones fluctuate throughout the day, so does the mi- microbiome. So certain colonies of bacteria are higher in the morning, some are higher in the evening, and sort of this wave-like motion throughout the 24 hours of the day. So there's some studies that have shown that some moderate, some would call it moderate, like light even, time-restricted feeding or time-compressed feeding has a way to support that healthy circadian rhythm of the microbiome. So what I mean by that is like a Four, I think this study was maybe done on a 14-hour fast. It's really not much. And that includes sleep. So really not that much at all. So it is uh, like a 10-hour eating window. Just kind of allowing a couple of hours in the morning maybe before you break your fast. Allow a couple of hours after dinner before you go to sleep. Basically be fast, fast, fast through the night uh, until you break the fast a little bit later in the morning. That's one way to do it. But then from there, I really feel that sort of a vacillating, just like I mentioned with probiotics, like not doing always the same thing is really supportive of gut health and mimics a lot of what our ancestors would have done because of, because of food availability, that always eating, always grazing, always snacking tends to breed these bacterial overgrowths, especially the opportunistic and pathogenic bacteria. So being intuitive with it, and I know that's a big word with a lot to unpack, but what that even means, but checking in with your body. And that's why, you know, that gut feeling connection that I talk about in the book is so important. Like just get rooted in your body to see what actually does, makes you feel good. What actually loves you back. And fasting can be a great tool. I I hear countless of patients tell me, I feel so amazing. They're not doing it because it's some restrictive, obsessive, negative thing. They are just doing it because they feel really great when they're doing it. And then they break their fast with no shame. It's not like they're a failure because they maybe they meant to do an 18-hour fast but ended at 14. That's the grace and lightness that I think should be infused within everything that we're talking about in wellness. So yeah, that's my take on it. You know, the fasting thing is interesting because rather than feeling like a failure because I broke it, and not that I've ever really, I mean, I've done long juice fasts and things if I've gotten sick um, and, and whatnot, but I often feel guilty or like I'm making a mistake because I just don't feel like eating a lot, especially during the day. I just don't eat. I mean, my wife's like, dude, eat something. You haven't eaten all day. I'm just like, I'm not hungry. But unfortunately, I tend to get hungry at times when it's probably not optimal to to eat. Like late at night, I crave sweets and that's probably not a great idea. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that your your approach and 
you know, we didn't really get in specifically into orthorexia, but I think just all the obsessing about like your food is probably when it gets into the neurotic side is probably worse than just letting it roll. Like maybe if I don't feel like eating, that's okay. I, don't, I shouldn't feel like I have to eat or I have to fast. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, I love that you speak a lot to the intuition. Yeah. It's just, I think it's tricky sometimes discerning what is intuitive eating and what is like, I'm craving sugar because I have anxiety. So I'm going to pound a pint of ice cream yeah. to feel better, you know, emotional eating yeah. and things like that. It's, it's very, it's very nuanced. A hundred percent. I mean, that's why I just pissed so many people off with intuitive fasting with my past book because the capital I, capital E, intuitive eating, which my book wasn't about that, it's really been co-opted that even that word police of that word intuitive has been co-opted by a certain group of people where it's like the body positivity, there's no such thing as a bad food, it's the anti-diet culture, that sort of thing. That works for some people, no shade on that. But it is my point coming from a functional medicine standpoint is exactly what you just said. Is it intuition or is it angriness? Is it intuition or insatiable cravings? Like stress eating is not intuitive eating. But a lot of people think, well, there's no, I'm being told there's no such thing as a bad food. That's diet culture. So I can just eat this thing and I, but they end up feeling horrible many times, right? So it's not an easy, and that's the art, right? It's, you can't always just science and show that on labs. You can look at the metabolic syndrome on labs, which can feed that hangriness and cravings for sure. But ultimately, it takes some time of experimenting to see what really loves you back, what really loves you back. And people want to feel good. So I think they just be going back to that statement of being your own experiment, I think really, and not letting other people tell you this is what it should look like, right? And letting them determine your dogma of your life. Because when you get that noise out of the way and really just self-experiment, I think people can make the, that more mindful approach for themselves. That's a really good point because there are so many well-meaning, well-researched, intelligent experts in the health space that are diametrically opposed in their views. I mean, I could sit down with someone and by the end of a conversation, I am so convinced that I need to be keto the rest of my life. <laughs> and then I sit down with the next person. They're like, oh, you're going to get adrenal fatigue. You're going to be all hopped up on cortisol. You're going to wreck your health. And it's bad for longevity. I mean, you can like look at any approach and you can find really solid points of view and evidence to support that. And mm-hmm. I think for so many of us, it gets probably people listening. And I'm sorry for this, for having so many diverse points of view on the podcast, but you can get boomeranged around in all of this yeah. dogmatic health guru shit. And at the yeah. end of the day, going back again and again to the bio-individuality, right? Of yeah. just like no one thing, diet or supplement routine or anything is going to work for every person all the time. Right. And, and, and absolutely. And I would say also what works for you today isn't necessarily what would necessarily you have to do for the rest of your life either. And that's when many people feel like pivoting is like a moral failure or pivoting is they're a fraud because that they were did it and now they like they were a vegan and then it works. I see for them. this a lot. Yeah. And, and they yeah. oh my gosh, I just I'm like a fraud. No, you weren't. You evolved. You're a different season of your life. Your microbiome has changed. So the food you need to be eating needs to evolve. Or you enjoy different things. And that lack of stress around the food is is therapeutic. So yeah, it's oh hopefully people cannot be overwhelmed by bioindividuality. I think it's good to have diverse different opinions because people that listen can pick up some things from every conversation and say, maybe it's not even for me, but maybe it's for my aunt 
<laughs> that yeah, needs yeah. this thing right now. Or maybe it's for my friend that's really struggling with this. I don't have to do all the things, but all of these things have their place within, like the analogy that I use in the book is like, we're all different facets, all reflecting light and facets of a diamond, right? All reflecting light in our own way, but part of that same diamond. And I see wellness like that, where it's like, yeah, keto, vegan, high carb, low carb, fasting, no fasting. They all have their place of like helping people, but it's just like, who's doing it? How are they doing it? And then for how long are they doing it? I.e. context, so. There, there are great, in the diversity of thought, there are great little clues, you know, if, if you kind of put them together. And, and that's happened for me multiple times in this conversation. Going back to one thing you said about how some people um, don't tolerate different protein powders well, and I've known that I don't tolerate like pea protein, like all the plant protein stuff, all those protein powders for vegans. I mean, it's not, it just does yeah. not work. So I've been on, my wife actually pointed this out to me. I've been on whey protein, like really clean grass-fed whey protein. And that's pretty much my morning smoothie, whey protein, couple raw egg yolks, some raw milk, amino acids, et cetera. I mean, nothing in there that should be problematic. Oh, and some collagen, or I'm sorry, a gelatin, like protein, powdered gelatin. And my wife the other day, and I, we traveled for the weekend and I didn't eat that and I just ate regular food. And she noticed that I, there was much less flatulence uh, taking place. <laughs> and she, you know, it's very noticeable to her. And she pointed out, she's like, have you noticed that when you're not on those smoothies that you're, you're not making as much noise around the house? And I was like, God damn it. She can't be right. Cause it's so easy <laughs> just to throw it in the Vitamix and just keep it moving. I'm not yeah. hungry in the morning, you know? And I was like, she is right. And I realized it's the freaking whey protein. It doesn't, it's not, I don't tolerate it well, even yeah. though I really like it and it's convenient yeah. and all the experts, you know, yeah. would say, oh, it's great. It's a clean, it's easy to digest. It has, you know, yeah. less casein, whatever. But my body's like, no, eat a burger or whatever. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Hey, and there's nothing wrong with whey protein. And it may work to you for, for a time, but just fed certain bacteria and you need to mix it up a bit. Right. It's, yeah. and, and that's a good point too. It's like, sometimes it's not the food that's necessarily a problem. It's like, are you having, it's just too much of that food all the time. It just, sometimes you just need to take a break from it or have less of it and you're fine. I see that a lot with reintroduction of foods. It's like eggs are maybe fine for some people randomly, but if they have it every single day, it can create some sort of reaction for some people. And I love egg yolks. I have no problem. With, I, I, I eat them all the time. But it's diversity, I think, is, a, is the word that comes to mind, like mixing things up, which isn't always easy for people especially for people that are like, look, all this stuff's overwhelming. Like, how am I going to rotate stuff? But, you know, do the best you can. Again, don't stress about it. But it, it is, uh, I think, it's what humans would have done for a lot of period. They Eggs year-round wouldn't always be available. Right. Nor would like a, um, a, a beehive full of honey. Yeah, right. right. Exactly. <laughs> it would have like a bunch of sugar for two days and then you wouldn't get any for yeah. a month, you know? Yeah, but like grams and grams of even whole food sugar year-round may not be the best for everybody. Um, a couple more things I want to cover here because you talk about this, um, the effect of stress. You know, we've talked about emotions and how that relates to your, to your health, but I have a feeling that A, most of us are probably under more stress than we are aware of and B, that we likely don't realize how much stress is impacting our well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's huge and it's a lot more nebulous in the way because all the things I've been talking about in today's conversation is more prescriptive, right? It's like, okay, these foods are more inflammatory. Look out for this stuff. Be mindful of that. It is a lot more gray 
to say like, how do you not stress, right? Then they stress about not stressing and they just become, you know, like they, they have to live in this bubble of just no family, no friends, no work, which is just not a thing. It's not a, nobody's doing that. Well, maybe a few people, but you can't just live in an ashram in front of, you know, on a hill. So ultimately I have to give people tools, even, you know, within their protocol, prescriptive tools that are just increasing their resilience that are support, that's supportive of the parasympathetic nervous system. Because really, human beings would not be here without the ability to handle some stress. So I'm not like anti-stress. Stress is good, but the dose matters, right? And even the conversation on hormesis and the hormetic effects of some good stressors. But it's the chronic stress. It's the stress that goes on in perpetuity with no end in sight that the person's nervous system never is able to calm down. And in turn, their endocrine system I see it on labs all the time. Their cortisol is completely dysregulated. Their estrogen, progesterone, testosterone is completely dysregulated. Their thyroid hormone completely dysregulated because these are biochemical emails and that stress is really throwing off. Both psychological stress, like life stress, then physiological stress, which we've been talking about a lot, like underlying gut problems, mold toxicity, histamine intolerance. These are stressful too. So both the physiological, i.e. the gut and the feelings, the psychological are both really doing a number on so many people's nervous systems and immune systems. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, so how do we live our life in a way that is sustainable for us? And most people will have this sort of conversation with me, patients will, of saying they'll know this relationship or this job or this situation isn't sustainable. They don't always have the answer of like, how do I get out of it? But they know something's got to give it's going to be either me or the situation. And we have to start, you know, I've seen some crazy scenarios in this around people leaving their careers as they get healthier. Like we get them to a healthy point and they know this is not jiving with my health journey anymore. And they leave their job, career, career jobs. I see people leave relationships because they see, wow, I'm getting myself healthy. They're not on board with me and they're actually feeding into my stress and anxiety and my nervous system's never able to calm down because of this. That's not always possible for all people, right? You, it's definitely a personal conversation that I have to have with people. But it's, you know, you either have to get to the point where you have to either change, leave, or accept the situation. Yeah, yeah. Because the rest will, you know, create more inflammation and dysregulation in the body. I, I love those three choices. One of my mentors years ago when I was faced with a, stressful situation, job relationship or something of that nature, he'd say, you have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Like that's, the, that's the, the linchpin of the whole thing. Either you surrender to it completely, yeah. if you have the capacity to do so, yeah. you change a relationship to it and find a way to make it work within yourself by you changing your perspective or you have to leave. And I always would kind of lean into, well, I just need to have more acceptance. You know, I was in my early spiritual understanding, well, I need to surrender and have acceptance. And then he'd say, sometimes you also have to accept that something is unacceptable, Mm -hmm. right? You can't surrender into every situation because sometimes those situations just don't and can't serve you. And the acceptance is in the letting go of it and just saying, fuck, I got to leave this relationship or this career or whatever. And that Mm -hmm. that is a really difficult place to get to for most of us. It is. And it could be... I mean, and when I'm saying those things, it's not easy for anybody. So that's the thing is like when you when your life is on the line, meaning that your health, you know your health is not going to be where you need it to be. 
those are big decisions. So some people that listen to this be like, oh, I, could, I could never do that. Well, those people would say that too. But when you're at the end of your rope, you make decisions <laughs> that you need to do that are ra- considered radical by some. But yeah, it's, I mean, the phrase radical acceptance is radical for a reason. Sometimes it is accepting the unacceptable. <laughs> yeah, right? totally. Yeah. Radical acceptance. Yeah, yeah, I love that term. I like, I like when any word has radical, I like yeah. radical honesty. I love radical honesty. Yeah. Just yeah. being forthright and straight mm-hmm. up. I love people that are able to communicate in that way. Hopefully with a little bit of temperance, kind, you know? A little kindness. Yeah, yeah a little kindness <laughs> thrown in there to soften the blow. A little dash of um, kindness. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned thyroid. This is something that seems to come up for a lot of people. Um, do, do you typically, I'm, well, let me form my question here. Do you find that thyroid is such an issue for most people that you can just blanket prescribe like a desiccated thyroid? as just a supplementation? Like is everyone's thyroid jacked up or is the hyper or hypo something that's important to discover the nuance in? Yeah, I, I don't, it's extremely ubiquitous, but I don't think that people should just be randomly taking desiccated thyroid. It's not always needed or desirable. Uh, and you talk about something that's completely transient and variable. I mean, a snapshot on a lab. <laughs> it's, it will, if you took, tested thyroid 10 times a day, you're gonna see, you could see, 10 different answers that up and down based on that person's life and stress and sleep and foods they ate and all this stuff. So it is important to look and track. And that's why anybody that is tracking thyroid replacement hormones or tracking someone's thyroid health tends to, in, in my opinion, should in most cases retest pretty often, like four to six weeks, typically sometimes shorter to track over time how they're doing because it's so responsive to so many different variables. So to make this sort of like, this is my dose and I don't need to change that. It doesn't work like that. It's dynamic. So it's, ve- it's very, very common. I mean, the majority of low thyroid function in the West is autoimmune in nature. Hashimoto's disease is the most common one or autoimmune thyroiditis. Graves disease is the other one. It's hyper. Someone that has Hashimoto's can actually have overactive thyroid too. They can have what's called a thyroid storm. And even though it's Hashimoto's marker, a TPO or TGA uh, thyroid antibodies, they are going to vacillate between hyper and hypo. And I have patients that have both Graves disease and Hashimoto's disease or like different poly autoimmune issues. Because um, again, it's not the thyroid that's the problem. It's the immune system's overreaction oh, to okay. it. So like for those people, is thyroid replacement hormone needed? Yes, it's needed for many of those people. It should be based on labs and it's going to be a tool within their toolbox, but it's not dealing with the autoimmune response at all. And that's where we come in functional medicine. It's like, okay, why do you have this immune system that's lost recognition of self in the first place or whatever reason it's attacking it because of a virus issue or an underlying gut problem or unresolved trauma that's hit a, catal- hit a sort of precipice that triggered it uh, as well. Any sort of combination of the physiological and the psychological, we have to look at it. It's common. But why do you have the problem in the first place? Is it an autoimmune issue that's attacking the thyroid or is it life stress that raised inflammation levels that decreased the conversion of T4 to T3? Or is it uh, mold toxins that blunts the brain thyroid axis? So it's low thyroid secondary to pituitary hypofunction where it's a brain-based problem. It's actually not a thyroid problem. So it's easy to say, well, it's all thyroid. Just give it thyroid replacement hormone. But it's not as simple as that. And that's why many people... I wish it was. I know, right? <laughs> that, isn't that just a magic pill? Yeah, I just want a pill for everything. But, well, I got, I got on thyroid uh, on, the, on a, just a 
blind recommendation from a doctor friend of mine and I feel amazing. I've never had so much energy in my life. We never, we didn't do any tests or anything. He's just like, okay. how old are you? Da, da, da. You know, he kind of asked me a few questions. He's like, just try it, see how you feel, which I did uh, and have continued to feel amazing. Yeah. Just one of those every morning. And he probably has you on, they probably have you on a low dose. It is, yeah. Nothing crazy. Yeah. So look, I think there's a time and place for that. And back to your self-experimentation, you feel good on it. I see many people that are like, I don't feel any different on this. So at that point, it's not the right dosage. It's not the right medication for you, or it's not actually dealing with why you have the problem in the first place um, or a combination of those things. Uh, or I see for some people, it is like this honeymoon period where they, it's good for a while, but it's like, uh, it's, it's, then it kind of wears off or people that feel horrible on it because it's not dosed appropriately. Or sometimes it's the fillers or the additives in it. They should be on a TRA, a thyroid replacement hormone, but their body's reacting to some added ingredient to the medication. I'm going to take a moment here to share an incredible resource with you. It's called Quantum Upgrade. Every unit of matter contains quantum energy and so do our cells. Every person has a quantum energy field and constantly interacts with other quantum energy fields. Quantum energy is so important that the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics was specifically about quantum entanglement. Let me explain here how Quantum Upgrade uses this energy to powerfully enhance our well-being. Through many years of research, Quantum Upgrade has developed one of the world's most potent sources of usable quantum energy. When you sign up for their service, Quantum Upgrade associates your home, your phone, your business, your pet, or even your car with this energy source. And you all know by now what an EMF mitigation fanatic I am. That's because EMF frequencies are incoherent and dramatically stress the human body. Well, Quantum Upgrade counters this problem by harmonizing the EMF to make them no longer toxic to your body. This is why I love the service on my car. My car fatigue has dramatically improved. I mean, it very obviously works. But apart from the EMF benefits, Quantum Upgrade also enhances your vitality in many other ways, which are shown in the studies on their website. So if you want an affordable way to deal with EMF and experience the vitality you deserve, check out quantumupgrade.io. And get a 15-day free trial using the code LUKE15. Again, that's quantumupgrade.io. In a similar uh, line of questioning, I know many people also just use progesterone, kind of willy-nilly progesterone creams. I mean, I know a lot of women just hear something online and, and use that. As, is that kind of in a similar realm where it really requires deeper investigation before just kind of using that as a, a, a general part of your routine? I think that you could make the argument, like you said, a low dose for most people, you probably could, uh, could make the argument you could see a net benefit for a lot of people, especially based on that demographic and clinical experience that the doctor's basing it on. I would say I would want to base it on labs and see if what you're doing is effective or not. Like how much of a needle mover is it for you? You could use it just based off of subjective symptoms and experiences valid there's merit to that certainly but i think if somebody's most of the time people well, i can't say that if it's a massive needle mover for you people will take it just because it's a massive needle mover like it just changed my life whether it's progesterone or thyroid or some other supplement or hormone replacement therapy they want to feel good and that's all they care about but i think that the the mid the group of people i'm thinking about is are the people that had a honeymoon period with it then it wear it off wore off or people that 
you would assume they need to be on it, but it's not making a difference. Well, maybe you're not dosing it high enough. And you, it, maybe it moved a little bit, but if you up the doses more, you could like get it to the optimal level. So I think that labs for a lot of these hormones is gonna, are going to be helpful for most people long-term. All right. Uh, on to another question, and you, you may or may not have uh, a perspective on this, but I've noticed because I, I love functional medicine doctors. I, I have a few that I work with, um, and they've been very helpful. One thing that I see largely missing from their protocols and just understanding is the importance of retinol and copper. These seem to be just two vital nutrients, especially as related to mitochondrial function that no one's looking at, not recommended supplement, supplementing. And I find that strange. Is, are those two that you've looked into? You have yeah. an awareness around? They're, where do they fit in your yeah. you know, hierarchy of, of importance? Well, my people tend to be people with autoimmunity, right? Okay. So I don't think you can be around those people for as long as I have and not <laughs> look at the importance of vi- true vitamin A and yeah. copper. So both are important. You're right in the conversation, especially the larger conversation online. I've written about both, but it's like not talked about enough, certainly. True vitamin A. Some people are like taking the beta carotene. Eating carrots. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's the bioavailability is really poor in a lot of people, especially poor GI absorption and different polymorphisms, gene variants that make the activation or conversion of beta carotene to retinol more active, which you need for dendritic cells and the immune system, the way the inflammation is expressed. And same with copper. Uh, and I find that even with some nutrient deficiencies that when you get copper optimized, it helps a lot of other nutrients. Like it can help with iron, it can help with other micronutrient status. So it's needed. And reason, we typically don't need to supplement with it though. And why that is- Which is one, copper or both, retinol? Both, oh. we get, we, but we have people really focus on organ meats which have both. Right, and right. I find that somebody that's really doing like that multivitamin, that sort of nature's multivitamin weekly, a few times a week, that they are sufficient enough for vitamin A and copper. Now, if somebody is not focusing on that food, like they hate that food yeah. or then, whatever, they're not focused, then that's fine. No shame. Then we'll, we'll supplement then. Got it. What are your thoughts on uh, for the retinol, cod liver oil? I think that's great too. And that's another good example. It has loads of retinol. It's crazy. Tons of, tens of retinol and you don't need that much yeah okay cool thanks for thanks for covering that all right um i'm gonna leave a few of my questions off because i realize it's a four-hour interview if i don't do that (laughs) and we've we've gotten a lot of value out of your expertise here today but i would be remiss if i didn't um, get your perspective on emf this is this is something that's gaining awareness but i'm also often shocked I mean, in the medical industry in general, specifically, but even within the functional medicine world, it's like not something that's heavily emphasized. Mm-hmm. And um, based on my own subjective experience of just having researched this a lot, um, I, I believe that you could be on the best diet for you, mm-hmm. getting all your labs, doing the functional medicine thing. And if you're sleeping next to your Wi-Fi router, like you're going to be ill eventually. Yeah. You know, do, you, do you have any knowledge of this? Is this something you work with with yeah. clients? It is. Again, we're used to the, this more sensitive systems of people that are already going through health issues. Um, they are the canary in the coal mine for that too for the family. Where I don't think it's healthy for any of us. It's just showing up more acutely in the now for them. But who knows the long-term effect it's going to have on the less sensitive people. Like, you know, we mentioned like earlier with uh, William Davis and gluten, like it's, it, 
are people going to pay for it later on in life with even things like mold toxins? Like it's the whole family's not having a reaction to it, but is it healthy to have high levels of toxic mold in your body, even if you're not having symptoms? No. And I think EMF is kind of that same sort of environmental, quote unquote, environmental toxin that we're all exposed to low and slow in many ways and some in higher ways, depending on you sleeping. Like one of the questions we ask on initial consultations is, do you live near power lines? Like, do you live near these sort of high emitters of EMFs? Because it's important, especially for our patient, patient base. So then it's a matter of how much do you want to deconstruct their life? Like how much do you want to do what honestly that you had to do right in your life? Not everybody's willing to go to that length. So we have to do like, we have like the, have you heard of Soma Vedic? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So like even tools like that can help to empty that mason jar a little bit for them where it's not like completely Wi-Fi free. They're not completely EMF free, but it's something to mitigate and buffer that exposure they're getting on a continual basis. So yeah, it's a factor especially, you know, amongst the people that I talk to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think some simple intervention, I mean, because like you said, not everyone's going to be like Mr. Tinfoil Hat like me and Faraday their entire <laughs> house, right? But like one of the recommendations, I just, a blanket recommendation, if people are unwilling to let go of the convenience of wireless technology, which I get, it's really convenient to be able to just open your iPad and laptop whenever you want. But at least just put your your um wi- your Wi-Fi on a timer at night. Yeah, I turn it off at night. We yeah, yeah, just we recommend that. When you're at least when to me it's like do whatever. But when you're sleeping, man, that's when your body's going like, all right, we're going to recover from all of yes. the assaults that we've been facing in the world, and that's when we're going to regenerate. And it's like if there's still that irritant, yeah, of that RF field, or even you know sleeping against a wall with wiring in it, you're getting this sixty hertz electric field just blasting you aggravating your nervous system all night, man, I'm like, at least deal with your bedroom and try yeah. to make your, you know, your sleep sanctuary as harmonious as possible. Yeah. And, and I think I find that that action step, which is a really good low hanging fruit for many people, it's just turn it off at night is it's, it's doable for most people. Yeah. It's not that crazy. You can yeah. habituate your, and putting your phone on airplane mode or yeah. keeping it out of the bedroom. I mean, those are, yeah. I think those things stuff. can be really impactful and it's not a huge interruption yeah. to your, your lifestyle. Yeah. It doesn't and that's, require. Those things like phone out of the bedroom, airplane mode at night, turning off Wi-Fi is baseline for most of our patients. Not all listen to us, but <laughs> yeah. it's baseline. Yeah, I bet. All right. And then yeah. the last one is in a, in a similar vein is um, blue light exposure. To me, I mean, having done a lot of research with neuroscientists and really smart people that have picked this apart, that this is um, is a way bigger issue. And that's not just because I sell a blue blocking eyewear line called Gilded. By, you can find it at gildedbylukestory.com. Halfway kidding. But uh, this is something that's really improved my house. Like we changed all the lighting in the house to like amber incandescent bulbs. I have different light setups where there's red lights on certain switches. So after dark, it's just very calming. And um, my sleep metrics have verifiably improve from starting to integrate some of this. And I'm always shocked when I go into not only hospitals, but even, you know, like wellness centers and things, they're just blasting these really narrow bandwidth, um, you know, LED lights, fluorescent lights. Mm -hmm. And people are not only at night, but just in the day, not going outside and getting true full spectrum, Mm -hmm. you know, all the colors of the rainbow light. And um, you were speaking about the the gut biome and all these microbes, how they have their own circadian rhythm. And as you were saying that, I'm like, wow, think about how dysregulating it is to your gut 
to have bright lights like our studio lights here on in your bedroom and then you just go to sleep. Like your gut biome thinks it's noon, mm -hmm. right? It's this circadian mismatch. The circadian biology piece, I think, is just it's way understated and undervalued. Again, because like EMF, it's one of those things that's cumulative over time and you can't really see like, oh, I left the lights on last night and I feel sick today, mm -hmm. right? What's what's your take on on that whole Man. blue light issue? Well, and we track all this on data too. I mean, we get super, I mentioned the spreadsheets. We we look at REM and deep sleep, and when people start implementing these practices, light blue light blocking glasses and light bulbs, and you know, it's making their room. What can I think of the name of it? Blackout like, curtains. Blackout curtains. Yeah, uh, really protecting and nourishing that sleep wake cycle and allowing that cortisol to calm down in the evening, allow serotonin to convert into melatonin, all that stuff when consistently, like you said, it's not like, well, I did it one night. It's like people going to the gym. Yeah, yeah. It, it does take a while. Yeah, it takes yeah. some time. Yeah. Now, some people will notice I feel more alert in the morning, but the real health benefits come from cumulatively supporting that parasympathetic over time, which back, if I could say really the overarching combination of all the things we're talking about here is supporting the autonomic nervous system to be more in balance because so many people are in that hypervigilant sympathetic state all the time. Even when they're sleeping, they're in a low-grade stressed state because of these factors. So when people are consistent with these practices, light, like blue light blocking glasses, you could see the REM and the deep sleep improve tremendously. And we track it, you know, on a So whoop. you see that clinically too, huh? Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. Whoop, uh, whoop band, aura ring, anything like that. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for being aware of that. It always frustrates me when even just like really talented and brilliant functional medicine doctors like ignore both of those pieces. It's it's just, it's my little, yeah. uh, it's like hey. a thorn in my side. It's I'm fundamental. Like, you know, it's fundamental. Just one night of poor sleep, meaning like REM and deep sleep are impacted, will in, impact high sensitivity C-reactive proteins, spike these inflammatory proteins. That's just one night studies have shown, let alone years of people's lives yeah. where they wake up feeling like so exhausted and they think they slept through the night, but their quality of their sleep is really poor. And it's not something they have to settle for. I think, I think that um, because looking at like our, our diet, right? Like the, the food that we're consuming and we know that our modern diet is full of all these toxins and devoid of all the nutrients that our bodies need. I think it's just because that's more tangible. That gets a lot of attention and just the general um, ill health that we're experiencing. But I look at it kind of zooming back, almost paleolithic living environment, mm -hmm. right? That we would have been outdoors. We would have been around firelight. There would be only natural EMF, the sun, the magnetic field of the earth and so yeah. on, right? It seems to me that living and working inside structures that are not biologically compatible is maybe even equal to the food we're putting in our body. Yeah. It's like It's like the... The nutrients that we're missing from our environment, the ambient nutrients, mm -hmm. you know, fresh air, mold-free air, et cetera, and also the stuff we're putting in. So I'm, I'm excited to see more emphasis being put on just the environmental impact from being so far removed mm -hmm. in our domesticated kind of city-dwelling urban lives we've created. It's wonderful to have air conditioning and heat and keep the rain out and everything, but the cost of that has been our disconnection from these elements of nature that are so supportive, yeah. you know, grounding, being barefoot on the earth and, and all of that. That's kind of, it's not as sexy. And, and the impacts, as you said, take some time when you start to make yeah. adjustments like that. You don't see the change overnight, but as someone who's been doing this for a long time, I can guarantee you that, you know, avoiding EMF, blue light, grounding, getting outside, getting sun. I mean, 
We've been brainwashed into thinking the sun is out there to kill you. You know, the sun is like the reason there's life on the planet. Yeah. I mean, you know, safe sun, obviously. Yeah. You don't want to go get burned. Don't but, get burned. But yeah, so I'm just an advocate for like the concept of kind of making the interior of your home as close as you can to the exterior world. 100%. You know? Yeah. And there's other studies that I've shown that even, and I, I don't think this is as good as the real thing, obviously, but even pictures of a sunset can impact a circadian rhythm. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's cool. So the body, it doesn't take much. So people are like, can't look at a sunset. Like just bring nature inside as much as you can. Like it plants into your house or things that are supportive, I think is help are helpful. Like the technology where people have the PEMFs or the grounding mats. If, you, if it's hard to get to the park, like do as much as you can to yeah. bring outside in. Yeah, excellent. All right, I got one last question for you. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life or your work in, in any way? The meaningful, the meaningful touch points of your life that have really made you who you are today. Yeah. So you want the person and the teaching or just... Either. Okay. Whatever comes to mind. Okay. Let's, let's think about this. Uh, in no particular order. No particular order. I would say my wife would be number one. We got married very young. We've been married nearly... 19 years, 20 years at this wow, point. I got cool. married at 20, yeah, 20 years old. So when I thought I knew everything at 20 years old. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> but like the amount I learned from her and got to in many ways grow up from 20 to like 39 is like insane. To be able to look back and time is such a freaking vapor. It's like, I can't believe like the years are just flying by. And it's so cliched, but I'm just like, I see it now more than ever. And my kids would be number two, like 16, 13, like really... They've taught me so much and they're extremely just amazing people. And third is not family member, but it's Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle's books and thoughts. And he was like my first, when I was really, it was like a teenager. I was a weird teenager, but I was into like biohacking before it was called biohacking. But yeah. I'd, I'd work, I worked at the finish line at the mall, like selling shoes at 16 years old. And I'd go and... Uh, use my paychecks to go to the health food store and like buy the random like superfoods and tonics and try I just read about it and I thought it was interesting and there wasn't the variety that we have now. This is a small town in western Pennsylvania. This was not air one. The bulk bins of granola and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like that and like wheat germ, bags of wheat germ and oh, stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. It had a certain smell. <laughs> yeah, like I know I know exactly what you're talking about. It's nostalgic. Yeah. But it uh but Eckhart Tolle those years like being like a teenager, early 20s, reading his stuff uh, really got me thinking, in my opinion, is like sane living. Like the world is just so mad, but like how can you... And he's, what he's using is he's, he's was teaching in a modern way these ancient teachings. It's nothing new. He's just taught teaching these ancient mystery schools that are really not so mysterious at all. It's just logical living. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I love I love his stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'd want to interview him someday. He's on my list. If you always ask me who do you want to interview, it's always people that are difficult to get. <laughs> in some cases, I don't he, think he does a lot of podcasts. Yeah, he's somewhere yeah. in the middle of Canada. I think. But yeah, that um when that book of power the power of now came out, that yeah. was a huge awakening for me too. I mean, I yeah. got the CDs, I had the book. I yeah. I mean I listened to that thing probably yeah. hundreds of I times. Do, I still do. I, I used to have the CDs, but now I just listen his voice even it's like a meditation in and of itself, just hearing his like very calm 
centered voice. So it says a lot about your your mindset because over the years, I mean, it's been some time, but when I was really hyped on that, yeah. I, I would turn people on to the CDs, burn them, MP3s, yeah. don't tell anyone. <laughs> I was like- Napster. Yeah, torrent, torrent sites, you know, but I'd give it to people and they're like, ah, oh, it's cool, but I just can't stand his voice. It's so oh. annoying. And I'm like, yeah. really? Like that's the thing that's going <laughs> to hang you up on- a profound teaching that could positively impact your yeah. life in, in very meaningful ways. Like really someone's voice talk about like the messenger versus the message. Yeah, you know, right. I always thought that I always thought that was fun. I mean, I get it, you know, whatever there's certain people that probably grate yeah. my nerves too, but I could never understand that because no. the potency and simplicity of the teachings were yeah. so so meaningful to me. So yeah. such a profound change took place that I always thought that was funny. But yeah. Never bothered me. I don't no. really care what someone's voice sounds like or their yeah. accent. I'm like, what are they saying? What's behind the yeah. words? You know, no, I think it's. I I could talk about Eckhart Tolle's accent all day long. I like it. It's like this mysterious, like it's, English German yeah, it's, Hobbit. It is, it is. It is strange. Yeah. It is a strange uh, amalgam of sorts. Yeah. 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 Well, man, thank you so much for uh, thank you for giving me so much great energy and information here Thanks, today man. and sharing you know your wisdom with the audience. Hey. I feel like. We've only just scratched the surface, but it's it's really fun to talk to someone who has the clinical experience, A, but also still has the passion for that experience and, and helping people like you do. So, Thanks, you know, thank you for your commitment to to service and your commitment to, to helping people that from the sounds of it are some of the most difficult to help and the ones that probably need it the most, you know, not like, oh, I want to optimize. It's like, these are people that are really hurting. So, yeah. Thank you for spending those 10 hours a day and you know, what you do. <laughs> Seems Which, like long, but it the, goes by quickly. By the way, no, it does. When, yeah. you're, when you're of service, there is no time. I mean, you're, yeah. in, you're in the quantum space it's of a, love. The flow state. But what is interesting about that um, too is, you know, going over your website, just kind of doing some more research on you. I mean, you have all these blog posts, you have your own podcast, like the amount of content that you and or I'm assuming your team is churning out. I was looking at it going, wait, you're still doing like consults with the people yeah. and you have this brand and your supplement line. It's like, dude, you're, you're a force of uh, Thanks, nature, man. a force to be reckoned with. Thank so. you. I love writing and I love talking about this. So it's all kind of a normal thing for me. Yeah. But thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for coming by. Thank you. All right, roll the credits. The show has ended, folks. Thanks for joining me and Will on this exploration of health today. And make sure to keep an ear bent for my upcoming appearance on his podcast, The Art of Being Well, coming at you real soon. Next week's episode, number 465, features a super popular guest of ours named Ian Mitchell. This one's called A Wizard of Science on Brain Health, Oxygen Water, Hair Loss, and Superhuman Strength. If you dig the deep dive geek out lifestylist episodes, you definitely don't want to miss that one. And to make sure you get the alert next Tuesday morning, again, add yourself to the lifestylist email list at lukestory.com slash newsletter. And if you want to learn even more about gut health, you'll find Dr. Cole's new book at lukestory.com slash gut feelings. All right, I'm Audi 500. I'll be back in your head next Tuesday with Ian Mitchell.